and welcome to a Two True Freaks special dedicated to a much-loved television series based on a certain Man of Steel since it's his 75th birthday and all. My name is Michael Bailey. Joining me for this overview is Mr. Paul Spataro of Back to the Bins at Comics Monthly Monday. Hello. We have Mr. Andrew Leyland of Hey Kids Comics and the Fantastic Cast. Hello. And joining us again from the 12 Angry Superman fan special that was dedicated to the film Man of Steel, we have Mr. Bob Fisher. Hello, everybody. Now, the reason we've gotten together this lovely Sunday morning slash afternoon as we're recording it, afternoon for Andy, of course, is to discuss the first television series about Superman, titled aptly The Adventures of Superman. The show ran from 1952 to 1958, and then went to went on to thrill new generations of fans in syndication. To say that this show was influential is an understatement. Not only do thousands of baby boomers look at this as their Superman, but many of the creators that would go on to write and draw and create the character in the 70s, 80s, and 90s would use elements of this show in their stories. Now, we have a very diverse group of people on the call tonight. Some watched the show first run, some did not like it when they first saw it. So we're just going to go around the room, starting with Bob. Uh, how did you discover the Adventures of Superman show? Uh, I should say, first of all, that I was born in the year between the shooting of the first season and it actually airing. That would make that 1952. When it hit the airs for the first time in 53, my family had just gotten their first television set. I was the only child at that point, and... Um, I came to it as a first-run little baby sitting on my mother's knee. But by uh, 1954, 55, 56, I knew exactly what was going on. I knew who Superman was and was watching them every Monday night until they went into syndication, which I started watching them every afternoon. I had standing instructions to my mother to make sure that I was home by 4 o'clock every afternoon to watch Superman. In fact, when I even read to this day Silver Age comic books, the voices I hear in my head are of these characters, these people, these people on that show are my Superman, Lois Lane, Jimmy Olsen, and Perry White. So I uh, uh, came to it as a first run and then in syndication, watched them all hundreds of times. That's basically how I came to the show. What about you, Paul? Well, I'm similar to Bob in that this was my introduction to the superhero uh, genre in total. I am now 50 years old, and growing up I had, well, I have two brothers, one of which is almost three years older than me and one of which was six years older than me. And when the show was on in syndication on PIX in New York, basically it was every afternoon sitting down and watching the show and loving it. And that was really my introduction to superheroes. And then from there, I started watching the 66 Batman show. Uh, and then eventually Super Friends and even, even, you know, the Marvel superheroes cartoons. Basically, it just introduced me to the whole world of superheroes. And I've always enjoyed it. And much like Bob, those are the voices that I hear in my head. I hear George Reeves before I hear Christopher Reeve. I definitely hear John Hamilton as Perry White to this day in any book that I'm reading. Not so much Jimmy Olsen, or, or Lois for that matter, but it's just a show that I grew up with a love of, and to this day, I still cannot have, if it's, if it's on the TV, I'm stopping, I'm watching, and very often, I'm going out of my way to put it on the TV, put on the discs, or, uh, you know, 
just get it on in general. I, lo- I just love the show. How about you, Andy? How did uh, how did uh, Adventures of Superman get over to the UK? I have no idea. I wasn't alive. <laughs> it's it's my understanding it aired on the ITV network in the in the fifties. Oh, I don't know because obviously I wasn't there. My first introduction to the show was the BBC dusted off the third season for a, a couple of screenings. Go oh, back in the late eighties, I think it must have been. I think I was still in high school. I caught one episode through the time barrier and thought this isn't for me. Uh, it wasn't Superman as I knew it. I got the DVDs when they came out because they were dirt cheap when they started releasing these. It wasn't long before they were hitting £6 for the entire first season. So I thought, well, go on, I'll give the first season another go for six quid for 26 episodes. Can't get really go wrong with that. And uh, I started watching the discs, and I would watch one every night um, as we were dozing off in bed at night. And I just got hooked on it. I thought that first season was absolutely fantastic. I chastised my younger self for for looking at it and going, this looks cack. I thought it was absolutely fantastic show. Really good. I thought the cast were brilliant. I thought the photography was brilliant. The black and white lighting was magnificent. The stories for most of that first season were great. So as soon as I could, I picked up the second season and third and fourth season box sets. And then I waited for seasons five and six. And I carried on waiting, and I'm still waiting for seasons five and six to be released, because apparently Warners don't want my money, and have never oh. bothered releasing it. They they haven't released it in the UK yet? They haven't released seasons five and six in this country, no. I've got seasons one, two, three, and four on DVD. I'm still waiting for the final two seasons. So you have episodes that you have never seen yet? I have episodes that I have not seen, and this we will mention this as we go through the episodes that we picked. Mm. There are episodes of the show I have not seen. Mm. I'm jealous of that. Yeah, part of me <laughs> is very jealous of that too. <laughs> well, I'm I'm kind of in a similar a similar boat as Andy. the The first time I remember seeing the show was the when my family and I lived in Mountaintop, Pennsylvania, when I was like seven or eight. So this is around 1982. The local PBS station carried the show. In fact, the guy that was pretty much in charge of the local PBS station lived down the street from us. And I remember being in his son's room and he had picture, like a picture of the George Reeves Superman, uh, on the wall. And, uh, I, I just remember vividly thinking this isn't Christopher Reeve. It looks kind of silly. I'm going to go watch the incredible Hulk. So, So it wasn't really until I was uh, getting into be like a teenager almost that I first really discovered the show. And where we lived at that time, we got channels through our cable system from both New York and Philadelphia because we were kind of equidistant from both New York City and Philly. And WOR, Channel 9 in, in New York, every Thanksgiving would have a Adventures of Superman marathon hosted by Jack Larson. And the first year I remember them doing this, I think it was the first year, they could have rerun the introductions over and over and over again, and I wouldn't have noticed. But it was right after I got into the comic books. And that's when I kind of decided that I was going to be, uh, that I was on the road to be a Superman fan, so I might as well start watching the older stuff as well. And I got to tell you, the introductions by Jack Larson are the one, are, are what really sucked me into the show, because he would always he would he would begin each episode with a little anecdote, 
about what you're about to see. And for some reason, that connected me to the episode that I was about to watch. So even if I didn't really like it all that much, I was still kind of engrossed. Do you remember that, Paul? Did you ever watch any of those? Are you talking about the marathons? Yeah. Yeah, on occasion. And basically, the biggest reason I watched them was because that was the only way to see them. You know, I, I had vivid memories of them from as a kid, but they were not out on VHS and they, I think they actually had a, like a select few, like a best of Superman VHS tape that came yes. out in the 80s. But that was it. You know, they, they didn't have TV seasons back then the way they do now. This is a fairly recent development, uh, the full season uh, access, accessibility that they have now. So it was kind of, you know, a little, you had a little bit of that, uh, that excitement for they're going to show the episodes that you don't get to watch much. So, yeah, I, I definitely made a point of watching those. Yeah, in 87, 88, they started putting out, like, the serials on VHS and, like, you're, you're right, the best of. And for a while there, Columbia House had, as part of their video series, you could order, uh, and again, it was only select episodes. Uh, the, the only reason I was really interested in those was the notes on the back of the tape box were by Mike Carlin who was a former editor of the Superman title. So that that's what drew me in there. But it was really, it was a lot like Andy. It wasn't until they released the first season on DVD and I sat down and watched it. You know, I, at this point I had read, you know, Gary Grossman's From Serial to Serial and I had an idea of the history of the show, but I never knew just how amazing, especially that first season was. And it just kind of hooked me in, and it made me such a fan. And 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 like Andy, I haven't seen all the episodes. I have all the box sets, but I just haven't. Dev- I'm now now I am, but I haven't really devoted the time to sit down and watch it because there's something kind of daunting about starting a 104 episode, you know, <laughs> marathon watching thing and trying to find time to do that. But it's like a I, whole new way of watching TV that's come ac- come along in the last few years, especially with the advent of Netflix and DVRs and and everything, where where people are doing marathon viewings of shows. And uh, I can't think of a better one than uh, than Superman to do it for. Yeah, this is this is the uh, the newfangled TV version of waiting for the trade. I guess is the best way to say that. That's not a bad analogy. But no, it's just as a overall Superman fan now. This show has a really big soft spot in my heart and just having those, you know, memories of being a kid and, and, you know, waiting for Thanksgiving dinner to start. And, you know, I wasn't really into sports and eventually Mystery Science Theater 3000's marathon on Comedy Central did kind of compete for the Superman marathon. But, you know, it was just there was just something really cool about discovering this kind of lost chapter for me anyways and even though it's it's out there in the zeitgeist but as uh, for this fan it was it was that lost you know like that unknown quantity of the superman history that uh that really drew me to this show the uh the history of the show well let me paint a picture for you the year was 1951 harry s truman was winding down his second term as president of the united states Clement Attlee succeeded Winston Churchill as Prime Minister of the UK. Joseph Stalin was still the Premier of the Soviet Union. And American Paris won Best Picture at the Oscars that year. Rosemary Clooney, Tony Bennett, Perry Como, and Nat King Cole dominated the music scene in the States. Two different Dennis the Menaces premiered that year. One is an American comic strip character, and one in the British comic The Beano. 
which I'm sure if you've lived with that name, it's probably normal. It just seems kind of strange to me as, you know, an ugly American. It was also the dawn of television in the United States. In 1948, only eight cities had television outlets, but by the end of the year, that number had risen to 23. Recognizing the rising popularity of what would soon be called the boob tube, the FCC ordered a four-year freeze on additional frequency authorization. At the time, only 108 stations were were in operation. Most failed, but some of them became somewhat profitable. By 1951, for Superman, well, the last set of Krypton was no stranger to being adapted into the other mediums by this point. His comic strip premiered in 1939, his radio series in 1940, the Fleischer animated shorts in 1941, and two movie serials were shown in theaters, the first in 1948 and the second in 1950. So it made sense that National Comics, as DC was known at the time, to kind of hide the fact that they were a comic book company, would want to try this Superman thing out on television. Bob Maxwell had been a producer and writer on the Adventures of Superman radio series, so he seemed to be the right man to job to produce the television adventures. Along with director Tommy Carr, they began production on a feature film called Superman and the Mole Man that would serve as a pilot of sorts for the series. Casting <laughs> casting proved more difficult than they first thought, especially when it came to the title character. Carr and Maxwell screened over 200 actors for the role of Superman and Clark Kent, and nearly all, Carr would later say, had a serious deficiency in their chromosome count. The man they went with was George Reeves, whose first breakout movie role was that of Brent Tarleton in this little-known, low-budget film that never went anywhere called Gone with the Wind. Reeves was a stage actor by training, but shifted to film work and managed to have a somewhat successful career before the war. But he was never a superstar. Uh, he managed to work consistently through the 40s, though by the end of the decade, parts were becoming harder to come by. George took the role of Superman mainly because he needed the money, though I think everyone on this episode can agree he was the right man for the job. Phyllis Coates, born Gypsy Ann Everts Stell. I actually got through that. I'm kind of surprised. Had a rather prolific career herself when she was cast as Lois Lane. Noted film critic and historian Leonard Moulton once commented that it was a shame that Coates didn't have a career outside of the serials and B-pictures because she was very talented and more than a little attractive. On, on a personal note, she is my favorite ever live-action Lois Lane, but more on that later. Reeves and Coates were the only main characters to appear in the feature, uh, Superman and the Mole Man, but they weren't the only characters cast for the show. John Hamilton was a veteran film actor and appeared in such classics as The Maltese, Maltese Falcon and The Babe Ruth Story by the time he was cast as editor Perry White. Jack Larson was only 19 years old when he won the role of Jimmy Olsen. Larson was still new to the acting game, but was cast for both his dramatic abilities as well as his comic timing. Rounding out the cast was Robert Shane as Inspector William Henderson, a character that was carried over from the radio series. Shane was another veteran actor that had a slew of credits under his belt before being cast as the top cop in Metropolis and brought, I think, a real charm to the role. Superman and the Mole Man was a success in the theaters, and episodes of the series were already being filmed. And for more on that, I hand things off to Bob. By 1951, as Michael has said, Superman was just about everywhere. Everybody, everybody knew who he was because of the uh, Saturday morning serials starring Kirk Allen. And, of course, the Fleischer cartoons and the radio show with Bud Collier. 
who I actually listened to a bunch as a kid also. They were on in the 50s and uh, periodically would listen to those, but didn't really get into the radio shows um, actually until much, much later as an adult. By 1951, the producers thought it was time to bring Superman to the small screen. Bob Maxwell would take the lead in that, and many of the shows in the first season were also produced uh, double billing production of Robert Maxwell and Bernard Luber. The Mole Men was actually written by Bob Maxwell and Whitney Ellsworth under the pseudonym Richard uh, Fielding, I think. I've, uh, somebody can check me on that. I didn't write that one down. The main directors for the first, two, the first season were Tommy Carr and Lee Sholem. Tommy Carr did 15 of the first 24 episodes with Lee Sholem picking up the remaining nine. Uh, not including The Mole Men, which was cut into the only two-part episode known as The Unknown People. The cast, of course, George Reeves, Phyllis Coates, Jack Larson, John Hamilton, and Robert Shane as Inspector Henderson. One of the other things about the cast during the first season, which is interesting, is that uh, they had maybe a dozen others who would be regulars. One episode, he'd be a bad guy. The next episode, he'd be a good guy. So... Uh, they really had kind of a, an ensemble cast. Uh, one little footnote, one real quick little footnote here. The first thing shot with this cast, these producers, the directors, was the what they called a feature film at the time. But it was shown as the last two episodes of the first season, while the last show shot was Return to Earth. Actually, the first show aired with this cast. This is one of those funny little tidbits. These, these first 24 episodes were shot in 1951 in only 10 weeks. In TV Guide, we're not even didn't list them as a superhero or an adventure show. They were listed as a crime show. And these first 24 episodes were heavy on the crime. Stories were dark, comparatively dark to where they went. But they were of the time. Uh, a word that is thrown around quite a bit of these first four episodes is a crime noir, black and white, wonderful lighting. It, it was just amazing the kind of things they put on for this show. Even though the budget was really, really tiny, special effects were state-of-the-art, especially when uh, considered they were done for the television and not for the big screen. Uh, we'll talk in detail, I assume, later about some of those special effects and how you can see uh, in today's TVs, uh, widescreen, flat screens, high definition, things that were never meant to be seen and you didn't see in the original airing because the average size of a TV in 1951, 52, 53 was eight inches, and it was black and white, and the con it was a huge console with tubes. It was exciting. To, uh, they hummed and news. Television was great. It was new. And if you were lucky, you had three stations. I watched it every night. Well, not every night, but every Monday night in Richmond, Virginia, where I lived. It came on every Monday night at 8 or 8.30. I don't remember those details. But in, the, in these episodes in the first season, George Reeves played Superman and Clark Kent, as a rough, tough, no-holds-barred good guy, basically. I mean, he did not hold his punches. Superman would break through something, and there's a bad guy, and he would hit him full force, uh, which, of course, we know now would, would kill them. So, uh, And Clark Kent also 
the flip side was no bumbling fool. Uh, in fact, he was also a uh, hard-nosed crime reporter and really took no crap off anybody either. Some would complain, in fact, that there wasn't a big difference between uh, the way George Reeves played his Superman and the way he played his Clark Kent. And uh, I think those of us who know these shows very well know that that's not quite true. There is a big difference, and maybe we'll talk about those later. Also, Phyllis Coates played Lois Lane. Still to this day, my favorite, I agree with you, My to this day, my favorite live-action Lois Lane. Not only because she played the part of a beautiful... Uh, hard-nosed reporter going after what she wanted and the story. But she was just absolutely gorgeous. She was relaxed. She looked normal. It looked like when she walked on screen, uh, she was in charge. Two of my favorite episodes, which we'll get into, uh, were some of them we didn't even choose. Uh, a little difficult to choose all of their 104 episodes. But even in this first season of 24, some a uh, couple of episodes that really shows off Phyllis Coates. Uh, one of them is Mystery of the Broken Statues, which I really love. That's a great little uh, puzzle-type show, too. And Night of Terror. In the first season, there were a lot of uh, things. That, as I said, the special effects were new. They had to be done for the first time a lot of times, and so injuries happened. Tommy Carr, the director, actually injured himself, showing George how to use the springboard for the first time. George Reeves himself fell on a broken wire. Phyllis Coates in the in the episode Night of Terror took a real right cross to the chin. A lot of things like that would happen. Again, they were rushing through these things, trying to do them as fast as possible, low budget. Uh, one of the things that they did to keep the budget low, and I don't know again how the actors pulled this off, that they would shoot all of, say, the Perry White scenes in Perry White's office for the week, they would have five episodes. The actors had their text, their scripts. They would go outside. They'd come in. They'd shoot the Perry White scene one, go outside, and then for the next shoot, come back and do Perry White scene again for a, another episode. And they would stack those up. So they were shooting multiple shows all at one time. How The actors sometimes had no idea what script they were shooting, what show they were doing. They would go in, hit their mark, save their lines, and leave. And it was up to post-production and continuity to actually put that stuff together. And watching these shows, it's amazing sometimes. Once you know that's how they did it, that uh, how well it was actually put together. But the main point is that the attitude was so different in this first season than all of the other seasons. Uh, in that it was more emphasis on a hard-nosed, black-and-white crime noir as opposed to the science fiction fantasy realms, which we'll get into. So they shot the first 24 episodes plus the movie, which was cut up into the last two to give them 26. Now what? They needed sponsorship, and alas, they didn't have any sponsors for this first season. It would actually take them almost two years before they got sponsorship and actually got it on the air, which leads us up to 1953. So which episodes have we chosen for the well, first season? Season one, uh, yeah. Also, okay, I was just going to say, I think we should all give a shout-out to Paul Spataro at this point. Paul is the one who picked all of the episodes, with two exceptions uh, that were added to the discussion. He's picked an exceptional batch of shows. He's not just picked 
all the classics. He's given us a well-rounded look at how the show developed over its uh, its five or six years on the air. I think Paul did an excellent job here, and I think we should point out that he picked the episodes that we viewed tonight. We're not going to do like Michael and I did with the Hulk and the Flash show and cover all 104 episodes. We thought that may be a bit much. So a big shout out to Paul who did pick each of the shows that we all watched. And a great, great, I agree, and a great cross-section. He didn't just go down the list and say, uh, these are the ones that everybody knows. And Well, there's a good cross-section of both the classics, some that are just outstanding, and some that will show you also what they were like in the uh, remaining color episodes, of which there were many gems. Oh, thank you. I feel like my back has been padded. Yes. <laughs> Uh, the question I have for you is, do you want to start with Superman and the Mole Man, or do you want to go in the order they were aired? I vote we go in transmission order. Agreed. Okay, in that case, for season one, we have Superman on Earth, The Stolen Costume, The Evil Three, Crime Wave, and The Unknown People. So just for the sake of the audience, just so that they know that I'm not a uh, blatant plagiarizer... Uh, the introductions that I have are either from Wikipedia or IMDb or TV.com, uh, and I'm just reading them. So uh, please don't hold it against me that I did not write original introductions for each episode. <laughs> <clears throat> Superman on Earth was Season 1, Episode 1. It aired on September 19, 1952. jor Krypton's leading scientist, sends his infant son to Earth in a rocket just as the planet explodes. The rocket is found by Eben and Sarah Kent, and Eben gets the infant out before the craft explodes. They raise the child as their own. Years later, after Eben's death, and now aware of his superpowers, Clark Kent moves to Metropolis. Sarah has made a costume for him, and she tells him that he must use his powers for good. Superman makes his debut, saving a man falling from a blimp. As Clark, he hustles the man to the Daily Planet, which scores a scoop. This convinces editor Perry White to hire Clark. It's amazing to me to find out that this was the last one shot, as Bob pointed out, mm. because it it feels like it sh <laughs> it almost feels like the first one shot because it's an origin <laughs> it story. But then again, for like the first third of it, the 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 principal cast is nowhere to be seen. We have a bunch of people running around in a hodgepodge of Flash Gordon costumes and other sci-fi type uh type costumes that the studio had lying around the thing that always strikes me about this episode is how 50s Jorel's hair looks i mean he's got this really nice like kind of professional style from that era and it just i don't know why it makes me laugh every time i see it but it's it just after listening to the radio show and watching the movie serials it's amazing how this origin with this script stuck through so many of the iterations of Superman before the movie in 1978. I mean, it's, it's your basic origin story. Again, I'm weird, so I take away strange things from episodes. The guy that Superman saves at the end of the episode, it took me a while to figure out who he was, but then I realized that he was the reverend on Little House on the Prairie which my sisters forced me to watch over and over and over again. When it, I had three older sisters, sir. I had no control over the television. So, 
But no, I mean, it's it, it's your typical, you know, like, there's Krypton, it blows up. Here are the Kents, one of them dies. You know, he goes to Metropolis, gets his job. I mean, it, it, it sets up the series, and I, and I, and I just, I, I really like it. As, I was as always one of the amazed. Origins. I was always amazed how much they got in this twenty-five minutes. It seemed like there was so much more as a kid watching this thing. Of it's it's Krypton. And by the way, I think it's funny. I didn't realize obviously until I was an adult and started hearing things, and the internet comes around. So I guess it was you know serial to serial or some of the other books that I'd started to read where uh, I realized that the costumes on Krypton were from the Flash Gordon serials. I saw this before I saw Flash Gordon. So when I saw Flash Gordon the first time, and it was at a, a local movie theater here, they used to run these serials on Saturday. Uh, when I was a kid, they would run these serials all day on Saturday sometimes, just have these marathons where they'd show like all 30 Batmans in a row or all of the Superman or all the Flash Gordons and just go all day with these serials. They were terrific. Well, one Saturday they were showing all of the Flash Gordon, and I remember actually saying, hey, they've got Krypton suits on. <laughs> so, to me, it wasn't that Krypton that this show used the Flash Gordon suits. It was the other way around. In my mind, uh, hey, they're using the Krypton suits. Uh, I thought this was just a terrific episode. It, it, I might actually say that a lot during this show, but uh, <laughs> this show, for some reason, I think just sets it off perfectly. Uh, even though they changed names, Sarah and Eben and all those, I, I, I really had no problems with that. I had no problems with a lot of it. I think one of the funny parts of this that you talk, Michael, you take some funny stuff away. One of the things, even as a kid, as you start watching all of these shows, I kept going back, well, what happened to his mom? I mean, in this episode, she doesn't die. She has her cousin, somebody come live with her. But after he gets on that bus and does the little see a mom, he's gone. There's not another mention of Smallville, the mom, nothing throughout the rest of the series. And I always thought that was interesting. They answered that. I, In fact, the Christopher Reeves first movie answered that by uh, saying, here's half of my check, send it home. But uh, I always thought that was interesting, that his mom was never mentioned again after he left home. I think that's maybe uh, indicative of the fact that until probably the 70s or so, they really didn't do serialized TV where the episodes built upon each other with a continuity. Mm. Uh, you know, this was more all self-contained episodes and meant to be viewed individually. And I like that, personally. I always had that. Uh, I guess that's part of being from the Silver Age. It's my comic book reading, too, is, you know, one-shots. Give me a book with a story in it. Thank you very much. Um, you know, modern comics uh, can be kind of strange to some people who think you're going to pick up a comic book and read a story when you're going to read probably one-sixth or one-twelfth of a story. Um, but uh, these shows, self-contained one-offs, was just terrific. I enjoyed the the fact that they could get a complete origin story um, in the 25 minutes and in, done so well. Even George Reeves there at the end in jeans and denim. Yeah. <laughs> a couple of things that jumped out at me uh, was, one, that he comes from a race of supermen. 
Uh, it wasn't that he came to Earth and got his superpowers. They were a super, you know, super-powered world, uh, and they were just going to a world where people had less power. And that jumped out at me. And I, and I know, you know, in the years uh, since his introduction, that one, you know, this isn't the only place where they had that uh, description, but that jumped out at me. Uh, just, you know, the rudimentary uh, level of the special effects in it with the rocket uh, that he traveled in, uh, you know, which looked like a rickety old uh, thing and managed to fly to a whole nother solar system, which, you know, you don't know how far it is, but, you know, didn't even look to be tight. Uh, Pretty much throws the baby in the car. Yeah, just put it in there and go. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, and it, and it was pretty tiny. And then you know, Jarrell's like, you know, yeah, you can get in there with him, <laughs> to Lara. Uh, you know, that would be. Uh, I, I get uncomfortable on a long car ride if uh, if I don't have enough room to to spread out. Uh, you know, one one other thing that I just jumped out at me is what the hell was that guy doing in the blimp? How the heck did he end up hanging from a rope like that? <laughs> <laughs> you know, they just show him dangling there. Nobody's trying to pull the rope up. Nobody's dropping down a rope ladder for him. He's just hanging by, by his hands on that rope. Uh, I, you know, I guess they didn't have seatbelts. What, what can I say? Yeah, it really uh, was a. Uh, oh, go ahead, Andy. Sorry. No, I was just going to say I like this one a great deal. It's um, watching it from our perspective that we only saw this on DVD. I was amazed how much Superman the movie just was this. The first mm-hmm. 45, 50 minutes of Superman the movie is this first episode. There's very little that's changed. Uh, me and Michael have discussed this before. Superman's origin's perfect. You update the window dressing, you change what they were in, and you go. Even Man of Steel, the origin bits on Krypton, are still perfect. The black and white photography is brilliant, and everyone knows the characters because it was the last episode that they shot. And what really surprised me was Sir and Eben Kent. Where the hell did that come from? <laughs> um, where did, where the, did Jonathan and Martha arrive from? The... Uh... Sarah and Eben came from the George Lowther 1942 novel. Lowther was a writer from the radio series. And a lot of what this show kind of used as its origin came from that, which makes sense because Bob Maxwell was the producer. But, you know, drew forth a race of supermen, men and women like us, but with powers and abilities, blah, blah, blah. That was all in the first episode of the radio series. And like I said, the script for this, for the Krypton scenes, was almost exactly verbatim from the script to the the radio and then the serial down to the councilman Rosan being in all of in all of those and Sarah and Eben came from the novel which was one of the first times that his past uh, you know being raised on earth was really explored in fact in the radio series in the first episode Krypton blows up and at the beginning of the second episode, Superman arrives on Earth, fully formed, grown up, and in the costume. And then has to figure out, you know, how to be Clark Kent. And it was one of the first times Superman's history was ever retconned, because later they would reveal that he was raised on Earth by a family, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, that, that's, that's where Sarah and Eben came from. And I brought the show down. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> uh, just, are we ready to go on to episode two? Yeah. Episode 2 on our list is actually episode 13 of season 1, which is the stolen costume. And I have to just say up front, this is my favorite episode of the series. Yes. Uh, and I'm, I'm actually disappointed that we're doing it so early in our list of episodes, just because sometimes <laughs> I save the best for last. This originally aired on December 12, 1952. A criminal breaks into Clark Kent's apartment, finds a hidden closet, and steals Clark's Superman costume. 
The criminal is fatally wounded, but not before he takes the costume to Hood, Ace, and his girlfriend, Connie. Clark is desperate to find the missing costume. And should I add, and Clark, and Superman kills. <laughs> well, I was, I was, I was going to say this is an exceptionally infamous episode, isn't it? Because of the ending, it's very noir drenched. The mm-hmm. story, it's got some fantastic dialogue. The photography, again, in these early black and white shows, is is wonderful. Candy is a typical hard boiled PI. He's magnificently played. Isn't he's kind great? of superfluous. Yeah, he's brilliant. He's kind yes. of superfluous in terms of the action. Because let's be honest, Clark really does screw this guy around. I want you to find something for me, but I'm not going to tell you what it is. And you're like, Clark, even the best PI in the world couldn't do anything with that. But the best thing about this one is it's gloriously off format from the rest of the episodes. It's got some magnificent bad guys in it. The femme fatale woman in this is just, she's the real brains of the operation. And she's brilliant. And the ending is one of those that you're like, did that really just happen? <laughs> what, what amazes me about the ending is he leaves them up there. He flies away. They don't even say, you know, let's check out the cabin. Let's see what it's like. Let's see what he left us here. It's He's gone for like 30 seconds, and it's like, okay, let's start climbing down this mountain. <laughs> better get started. She's got high heels on there. Like, you know, you think maybe let's let's look in the cabin and see if there's better climbing clothes or anything. Maybe there's a rope we can use, <laughs> you know, something. Uh- I think, I think the better question. Go, I was just going to say, and he leaves him to plummet to the death. And at the end, he's not broken up about it, is he? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Woo! He's, he's Load off my mind. <laughs> yeah, because he's like, well, I didn't directly kill him. If he'd done what I told him to, he'd still be alive. Not my fault. And there's a problem eliminated. A good day all round, I think. <laughs> I, 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 I think the better question here is why does Superman just have a random cabin on the mountain in the mountains just to stash people at. That's, That's uh... yeah. I, I, I've got this vision of him going to it, opening the door, and the seven or eight different people who have all discovered who he is in the past. <laughs> like, please let us go. <laughs> do revisit that cabin season two. <laughs> but uh, no, this this for me is the one of the reasons it's it's one of my favorites is it's just it's just an exceptional story, but also. In watching it on the DVDs, this is the one that that has deteriorated the most in terms of the film stock they used for the digital transfer. So it looks like a movie from the forties, you know, and 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 just it's 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 shot so much in terms of lighting darker than even the other episodes, and some of them, you know, got got kind of like you almost want to adjust the brightness on your television to see what's going on. You mentioned the femme fatale. She was great. The guy playing Ace, who's kind of the, <laughs> the, the, the boss, he's in like a, a couple of the other first season episodes, but I absolutely love him as a bad guy on this show. It, it's just like it, part of me sitting there with the wheels turning in my head where it's like, why couldn't they have like made up a recurring character for this guy? Because he was just so good as being the kind of like the heavy. Uh, you know, he just, he just had such a great presence around him. I feel so bad for Candy. You guys were talking about that. It's just like, he comes in and despite getting screwed over, he still poses as Clark Kent to get the information. So this guy is dedicated to his job to the very end. You know, it's just, you know, even though he, he's getting, he's getting messed around, he's still 
thinks of Clark enough to try to figure out what's going on, probably because he wants to know what's in there. I, I, I think the bomb scene is kind of funny where he, he saves candy. And it's just like random explosion in the apartment, you know, cause, cause why did they plant the bomb again? Every time I see that, I, I get confused by the time it gets along. I think along. the theory was, uh, if it killed him, then we know he wasn't Superman. Yeah. <laughs> Which is like the child, isn't it? If she, she drowns, wasn't a witch. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> which which very small rocks to the scene I always point to in Avengers number four when they save Captain America, and they start debating whether he's really Captain America. So to prove it, Thor throws his hammer at him. If it smashes his skull, <laughs> then he's not Captain America. If he gets out of the way, he is. Well, one of the uh, oh, I've just committed murder. Oh, lems the brakes. The, the first time I ever heard of this episode, oddly enough, was in talking. Uh, one of my best friends in high school, uh, after after we graduated, I, I you know we were going to college. I lived with him and his mom for a little while uh, before striking out on my own. And I discovered a copy of Superman from the '30s to the '70s in the house. So I asked her, you know, is this Ben's from when he was a kid? She goes, Oh no, that's mine. I'm like. <laughs> Really? She's like, yeah, I love Superman. I'm like, I, I've known you for years, and I've never known this. She's like, oh, yeah, when I was a little girl, we would watch the show, and there was this one episode where Superman let these people die. And I remember very distinctly the next day at on the schoolyard, we all debated this rather, you know, rather heatedly about who agreed with it. And, and I just thought Superman shouldn't let anybody die like that. And I'm just like... I'm seeing this woman for the first time. You're, you're not my Why friend's mom my anymore. Mom? <laughs> <laughs> so no, but it was just it was just amazing that this episode stuck with that woman, who at that point later uh, she she got back into Superman, uh, you know, through Lois and Clark and the reruns on TNT. But at that point, she hadn't read a comic. She had she probably watched the movies, but that's it. But that this this specific instance that 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 the, him allowing those criminals to fall to their death stuck with her for decades, and that's that's why I think this is one of those episodes that everyone comes back to because it's just it's so different. It's also one of the few. I think it's the only one that none of the other principals are in. There's that's, no Perry. That's, that's absolutely correct. That was one. There's of no Lois, and there's no Jimmy. None of them. And 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 it, in retrospect, it almost seems strange that they had Candy instead of Inspector Henderson. Yeah, but well, they had to go. He needed five. this to be off book, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. This had to be on the DL. Yeah. So now you think they would just pick somebody who's already on the payroll, so they don't have to pay another actor because they <laughs> were a little cheap sometimes. Yeah, I'm surprised sometimes? they didn't bring Candy back and use him for other. Uh, other things that Clark needed to do, quote, off the books. That I would have watched a candy TV was. show. What was that, Andy? I'm sorry. I would have watched a candy TV show. I thought... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Adventures Great. of Candy. Yeah, we move into Hawaii. We call it Candy P.I. <laughs> does, he, does he then take care of Robin Masters? And... Oh, yeah, yeah. He did it before Magnum. Who did okay, Robin Masters' dad? <laughs> I would totally watch that show. Oh, jeez! No, I'm not. I'm not really familiar with the actor who played Candy. Has anybody seen him in anything else? Because you would think a guy like that was probably a regular character actor back then. 
Yeah, I had seen him on a lot of old black and white uh, movies. I couldn't tell you his name right now or anything about him, but uh, he, the guy that fell from the blimp in the first one, um, uh, there are several actors that went on to have other careers or had done other things, uh, but a lot of them were the, your beef spaghetti western type stuff. Um, and this kind of thing, crime shows and black and white crime movies with, you know, uh, Cagney and those kind of guys. So. Yeah, he has an extensive IMDb listing. <clears throat> this this man worked. Uh, Frank Jenks. Frank uh, Jenks. Which is that, just really weird to say. Eye name. Great yeah. name. <laughs> Frank Jenks. Could be Frank, Frank Jenks. Frank Jenks P.I. could have been a TV show easily. Flatfoot. <laughs> Oh, right. want to move you know, on? Also, uh, also in this issue, uh, in this episode, the stolen costume, uh, in the scene where Clark Kent finally busts through the door uh, to knock Candy out and then talk to these guys, um, uh, they had to shoot that door scene twice because the prop people left the door braces inside. So the first time he runs up those stairs, it was supposed to be done in one take, him running up the stairs, busting through the door, hitting the guy, because they had a lot of long, single camera shots in these early shows. That was supposed to be one shot, but the prop guy left the uh, door braces inside the door. So when George Reeves hit the door, uh, it only partially broke, and he didn't go through it, uh, hurt his shoulder. So they had to reshoot it where... Uh, that's why you'll see that edit um, where he's running up the stairs and then they cut so abruptly to the indoor cam inside that room camera where he busts through the, the door. That was the second or third take uh, coming through that door because they they screwed up. You wanted they did several times, actually, throughout one, the One of the things that I, I noted when, you know, getting ready for today was uh, they had some indications that, uh, you know, when Superman would burst through a wall or burst through a, a door or whatever, uh, you know, he still had to look totally sure-footed. Uh, and they, they had a problem sometimes with the debris from the prop door that would break, and then, you know, he might step on a piece that fell and kind of lose his footing a little bit. And what they ended up adopting was they would take a long shot because they said George Reeves was actually very good at avoiding that, and if they had a long shot, that's what they wanted. Uh, right. But in the event that he ended up stepping on something and stumbling in the slightest, they had a close-up going at the same time because they didn't want to have to recreate the prop to take a second shot to get a sure-footed step, and, <laughs> and, and therefore they would take two shots at the same time, and, and they'd edit it together if they needed to. So throughout the series, I guess whenever you see a close-up of him breaking through a wall, those are the times that George Reeves stumbled slightly as he came through. Interesting. So which one we got next? Well, the next one is on our list. Thank you to you, Mr. Bailey. Oh, yes. The Evil Three, which is season one, episode 19, and first aired on January 23rd, 1953. Perry White and Jimmy Olsen, while on a fishing trip, end up staying at a rundown hotel. It has only three occupants, two men who are trying to kill each other, and a wheelchair-bound old woman who laughs like a maniac. Superman races to help his friends before they fall victims to the evil three. Thank you for adding this one, Mike. I got to give you credit for this. I should have had it on the list all along. This is, it, you know, it's funny. You have your favorite as the stolen costume, and and you know, on, on a Superman level, I, I can agree with that. 
for me and this season especially, this episode is so twisted. I mean, it's 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 it's, it's really where it's proved that this wasn't being shot solely as a as, as a children's show. Because, you know, you have the, you have the fun little opening of Perry and Jimmy, you know, they're arguing about fishing, which, you know, I guess it's nice that Perry is taking Jimmy under his wing to the point where they're vacationing together. Why is Jimmy on holiday with Perry? (laughs) (laughs) Don't ask, don't tell. Anyways, um, (laughs) no, it's just, and then the, but the first time we see, you know, these two guys, they're trying to kill each other. And not only are they. And not only they they trash that room. Mm. So then Jimmy and Perry show up, and it's just this, you know, I I made the joke in the past that, you know, this if David Lynch directed an episode of The Adventures of Superman, this would be it. And I've seen, and another friend of mine on Facebook, completely separate, said, you know, we have to find evidence that David Lynch watched this episode. Because it's just... What what I love about it is that at its heart, it's this kind of twisted drama of these people who hate each other, but they're all, you know, you got these two guys trying to find money, there's this crazy old woman, and Superman just happens to get mixed up in all of this. If Perry and Jimmy had kept on driving and had not stopped at this hotel, they wouldn't have found anything. What I also like about it is that it's a very good Perry episode because he's kind of the driving force behind everything. He stops at the hotel. He smells a mystery. So he kind of gets everyone involved in it. And Superman's kind of brought in almost as an afterthought. Uh, my favorite Superman moment, though, from this episode is when the, the old uh, Kentucky colonel takes him out to the swamp and it's basically like, well, I might as well tell you, they're dead by now, and I'm going to kill you. It's just like, yeah, good luck with that, pal. <laughs> I, I love that his, his weapon of choice is like a broadsword. <laughs> sword. And, and uh, you know, that, that scene at the beginning when the two of them are fighting and he's trying to kill the guy, you know, just from the way it's presented, that this is going on every day. Yeah. <laughs> and eventually they get tired, and you know, in Tom and Jerry fashion, and part friends, and, and then the next day they, they pick it up again. But, uh, uh, sorry, Mike, go on. The last thing I, I really wanted to say outside of how twisted Macy Taylor, uh, the, the balding guy in this looks after he pushes Elsa down the stairs. They have this shot that kind of focuses on him smiling and then kind of leering. And I'm like, this guy's creepy. <laughs> Is, uh, I've seen this episode like five or six times now. And only when when preparing for this episode did I notice that the name of the man that was killed was George Taylor. And that made me laugh because George Taylor was the original editor at the Daily Star and then the Daily Planet before Perry White took over. So, in a really weird way, Perry White is investigating the murder of his predecessor. His predecessor. I love that. <laughs> um, I... I I saw them in the hotel. I thought if somebody was going to such lengths to tell me not to stay in the hotel, I wouldn't stay. But I'm very like, <laughs> and I, I didn't sniff out a story the same way he did. Um, I thought this was one of the weird, weirdest episodes of television, let alone the weirdest episode of Superman. It plays almost as a straight-up horror episode Oof. in which poor Jimmy is just terrorized mercilessly for Perry's amusement. 
And the mood of the show is emphasised by this wonderful, the monochromatic photography, and this is brilliant. Jimmy and Perry are hunted by a Civil War refugee, George from Seinfeld, and a wheelchair-bound Harridan. <laughs> stolen money that was hidden in the house God knows when. And before Superman's pal and Perry can be stabbed to death, this is in the show, Superman shows up because at the 21-minute mark, the writers remember, wait a minute, the show's called Superman, so we have to have him in somewhere. He's not there in time to prevent the wheelchair-bound Harridan from being chucked down the stairs. And I'm like, I'm watching this stupefied that this is an episode of Superman. It's, it's wonderfully atypical. Superman shows up and threatens to break every bone in this old guy's body. And I'm like, this is golden age Superman. Chuck him out of a window, Superman. They'll just make it perfect. Um, I was amazed by this. It's so far away from what people's memories of this show is. It's so far away even from the other episodes that surround it, the crime noir stories. The closest is probably the Haunted Lighthouse. I thought this one was magnificent. It's wonderfully atypical. It's, it's borderline hysterical in places and then terrifying in others. It's great. It's a brilliant show. In many, many ways, it's a brilliant, brilliant show. Um, and, and, and even if, before you even get into the content of the show, before you even talk about what the show is about, from a technical standpoint, the opening scene of Perry and Jimmy talking about fishing. Look at it again. It is one, t I don't know how many times they did it, but it yeah. is in one continuous shot. The fiddling with the fishing rods, the interaction between the two of them, where he's sitting, the light, the camera, all of it, it's a good four or five minute shot that is unedited, unchanged, going from any other camera angles. It's absolutely brilliant the two of these two guys working together and carries it throughout the entire episode with Perry and Jimmy uh, establishing their characters who they are you really get a good idea of who these people are mm. and uh, just brilliant like you say Andy the the lighting through it when Perry walks out of Jimmy's room into the light of the hallway mm -hmm. holding that candle and the lights going off in one room coming on in the other with these shades of gray the mystery this could be a a, a hitchcock show or or uh, you know uh, again superman is almost an afterthought in this show it is okay like you say we're 21 minutes into a 25 minute show <clears throat> we better bring the star in to in this thing uh just absolutely brilliant and one other thing as a little kid, little kid, I mean, you know, pre-10-year-old, you know, you're under six years old seeing this thing for the first time on a little black and white set at night. It's dark. Everything is dark. <laughs> this show scared the bejeebies out of me. I mean, in all my years of reading Superman comics, watching Superman movies, doing Superman, Superman, Superman since I was three years old, I've had two Superman-based nightmares in my entire life. One of them was this show, and specifically the woman being pushed down the ramp in the in the in the chair. When she does that little giggle, that hey, 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 you find the money. 
And then that guy pushes her down that ramp. I'm telling you, she's screaming. I'm screaming. Everybody in the house is screaming. It scared the bejeebies out of me. I had nightmares, uh, well, forever, forever. The only other time I've had a Superman-related nightmare was uh, the Superboy uh, issue where Bizarro was first introduced. That also gave me nightmares. But this episode, this show, The Evil Three, is um, – I, I don't even know how to call, you know, what to describe it as. Somebody would say, is it a Superman episode? Well, he comes in at the end, but he didn't save anybody really. Had a little fight and said, oh, are you guys okay? But this was a Perry and Jimmy episode, <clears throat> and primarily Perry White. Of Let's get a story. There's a story here, young man, when they say there's no fish, and we saw them jumping, and they say there's nothing. Look at this place. This is just a brilliant episode, just absolutely brilliant. And <clears throat> Michael, you said you've watched it four or five times. I've probably seen it four or five hundred times. It's, it's just you know, almost every, every, um, and I'll add one more thing though on that. When you, <clears throat> I think you even mentioned it on Facebook this week about, uh, the name George Taylor, even watching it after you had said, we're going to do this. And I'm watching these episodes preparing for this. The name George Taylor didn't ring that bell until you mentioned it on Facebook the other day. And I went, Oh, how did I miss that after all these years? But, and that probably uh, goes to what we talked about before we started recording about how you can get engrossed in something and, you know, you're not, you're not that you turn your brain off, but you just submerge, submerge yourself in it and you're just living that moment and you're not really picking it apart. Yeah, exactly. And that was one of the things actually putting this together has been a little difficult for me to even look at these things critically. I mean, I can say, oh, look, we saw the springboard there this time or, you know, uh, Oh, you saw this little mistake or that little mistake. But even here at my age, I sat down, I popped these discs in, I had my notebook, I'm ready to take notes, here we go. And this show comes on and the notebook stays over there, the pen doesn't get picked up, and I'm engrossed in the story again as if I was watching it for the first time. It's just some of these shows do that to me. Uh, and uh, this is one of them. This one um, – this one stayed with me for a really long time, really long time. And I think that that goes to the heart of the show and watching it uh, when I was especially going through the later seasons, which I'm not as familiar with. You kind of have to look at this show not from somebody living in 2013, but for the fact that it was the first of its kind on television as far as being a superhero show. So it was kind of setting the trend almost. And this is how they thought it should be written. So there was no template. There was nothing to judge before it. You know, we'll get into the later seasons how the, the tone of the series changed. So in some of these episodes, when, it, when, the, when the plot's just getting really silly, and my wife came in when I was watching one yesterday and went, why don't they do this? Why don't they do this? Why don't they do this? <laughs> Which is why I love my wife, by the way, because she will point things out that I will never see in something like this because I am kind of laser-focused on, you know, the S on the chest. Right, me too. But, but at the same time, you know, you got to go, you know, if that happened, there wouldn't be a plot. And then we wouldn't have had an episode and... 
you know, scene. So the only the only other thing about this one from a mythology point of view is throughout the entire first season this keeps coming up. People don't know who Superman is. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of hard for us to wrap our head around that in the multimedia world we live in. But right. it's perfectly plausible that in the first season he shows up, he throws people around and punches them in the face a bit and he leaves. So it's entirely possible he doesn't have his reputation yet. This guy has no idea who he is, but he lives out in the sticks with no TV or radio. He's so pretty much a hermit. Super- yeah, pretty much. They don't and even have power. Yeah. yeah. You know, because cause he mentions, oh, we have no power. I'm like, dude, you know, maybe it's, you know, me, you know, grew up in the 80s and all that. And, and just thinking I, I would never stay at a hotel that didn't have power. Heck, I, I don't think I'd stay at a hotel if the TV was broken in the room. So you know, didn't have Wi-Fi. Again, yeah. <laughs> Amazing. And on to the next episode. Yes. Our next episode is on the list. Thank you to Bob. And it's another good, uh, good mix into the into the run here. Crime Wave, which is season one, episode twenty-four, which is the final original episode. Uh, of that season, and it first aired on February 27th, 1953. As a massive crime wave unfolds, Superman vows to put top mobsters behind bars. His ultimate target is the mysterious number one man. The top criminal devises a trap for the Man of Steel. I I think what's brilliant about this episode is there's like five solid minutes of nothing but Superman breaking into a room (laughs) and beating the holy hell out of everybody in it. And, you know, we, we, we mentioned before that Superman in this would come in and like punch people in the face. You know, later on he would do like the judo chop, which, you know, I I have to say every time I would see him do it, that's what I would, I would hear Mike Myers in my head going judo chop. But (laughs) no, Seriously, I mean, I'm watching this episode. It's it, it, and you know we said crime noir, crime noir. We've been saying that over and over again for the first season. This is like one of those that really typifies that because you have all these shots of cops running around and sedans driving fast and Superman breaking into into buildings and stuff and just cracking skulls and it was just it's just amazing. And and yet the thing I take away from this episode is when Superman's giving his press conference, you can tell it's towards the end of the series because that S is starting to come off that costume, <laughs> like, badly. I'm like, oh, wow. Man, I guess when, you know, Bob said it, you know, it, when when you have an 8-inch television set in black and white and you have no frame of reference, I guess you really don't notice it. When I've got my, like, 20-some-odd-inch television here in the office and I'm watching it as big as life, it's just really apparent that... It's the end of the season. The costumes, you know, getting a little worn. You know, the, the, there is a, a a legend. I don't know if it's true that at the end of every season, George Reeves would actually save the S and burn the rest of the costume. Uh, I don't see Whitney Ellsworth allowing that in later seasons, but you know, whatever. Uh, you know, it could be apocryphal. I don't know, but no, this is just it's this is a fun episode because it's. It, Andy kind of uh, touched on it during the Evil 3. This is a very Golden Age Superman story where Superman is in town, he's declared war on crime, and he's going to find the top man, and we get from point A to point B, and it doesn't matter that there's all this stock footage used to kind of fill in the gaps. 
it all plays just as well as if they had filmed it originally. Yeah, it's it's definitely Golden Age Superman. He's no nonsense. He's two fisted. He's taciturn. He's a dispenser of justice. He shows up. He punches people's heads clean off their body, and then he gets the hell out of dodge. And it's it's an excellent segment. It's very Superman heavy. Like I say, a lot of it's stock footage or B-roll footage from episodes that they didn't use before. But it is lots of shots of screeching police cars going down alleyways with one guy leaning out the window firing his gun. And it's 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 glorious, absolutely wonderful. The only thing I took away from this one, though, is how dense the criminals are. They have video proof yes. of, of Clark Kent changing into Superman and do nothing with it. Absolutely nothing. How intelligent, then, is the number one guy? Because I'm not getting that he's that bright. <laughs> he's I, able I to open it. a can of soup, so they all bow to him. <laughs> they, 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 seriously, they're, they're watching the movie. They see Clark Kent run into the alley. They see Superman fly out. And the, and the conclusion they come to is, that guy knows how to contact Superman. <laughs> you don't immediately go, wait a minute. <laughs> It's just, well, the only problem with this one is, is this goes back to what Bob was saying. Watching it originally, you wouldn't have spotted this. On DVD, it's plain as day who the bad guy is. Yeah. Well, <laughs> oh, yeah. it's not really that well hidden, even if you see it the way they intended it to be seen. I mean, yeah, you, let's see. We're going to add one new character. Yeah. And we're going to have a bad guy in shadows, but he has the same voice. Hmm. <laughs> we, we have Inspector Henderson, we have Perry White, and we have Ricky. <laughs> Who's the bad guy in the episode? We have, we have Ricky the red shirt. <laughs> <laughs> it would have been much funnier if it was Inspector Henderson. Yes, that would have been amusing. Then. That would have been a twist, wouldn't it? Or Perry. <laughs> I could buy it being Perry. <laughs> could have been Perry under some sort of hypnosis, mind control, something. This is an excellent episode in that... It is so typical of of uh, that kind of old crime uh, uh, genre uh, show, Superman or not. I, I loved it. Had almost every crime cliche you could ever possibly want in one TV show. You had the spinning newspapers coming up to you to tell you all the exposition you needed. Uh, mob boss number three. Superman declares war on crime. Rolling newspapers. Uh, I love, like you say, Andy, the the cars streaming by with the bad guys sticking their heads out, shooting machine guns and Tommy guns and uh, a few other things. One of the interesting things about this, all those clips, there were three or four episodes, uh, I think Czar of the Underworld and... um, I'm drawing a blank on some of the others, but there were three or four episodes where they used basically the same shots, and it was basically the same story, but uh, instead of having it all take place here, we're going out to Hollywood to film uh, a show about the crime boss that we captured last week, and so we're going to use the same footage over again. So uh, I enjoyed that part of it, but the fact that in Crime Wave, this particular episode, they were able to bring the whole season. I thought it was a very good way to end, not counting the mole men, uh, unknown people thing, but uh, an interesting way to bring the the first season to a close, pretty much showing what he had done the rest of the season, capturing all these bad guys and pounding them and beating them up and uh, 
um, uh, like you say, a very typical golden age Superman. There wasn't a lot of uh, heat vision or super breath, or it was smash down a door and beat them to within an inch of their life. Yay, and this and that happened like throughout the entire season. The no holds barred was an episode where at the end Superman comes in, and it's like you know it's like a Chuck Norris fight scene almost. <laughs> you know, every everyone tries to take their turn, and he's just like punching people. And yeah, at times it's very evident that they're cutting to the the stunt man, uh, who actually looked like Superman himself in, in a different way, kind of a kind of a more comic book version of it, but just. It's just really funny watching this after, because my original goal was to watch the entire series before doing this episode. Real life said, no, you're not doing that at all. But <laughs> I managed to watch the entire first season. So it was really funny, one, noticing all of the actors that appear in more than one episode. And and two, to see, to recognize the specific fight scenes that they were recycling because I had just seen it the previous day. And right. I guess, you know, you know, in first run, you wouldn't have that because weeks would have gone, months sometimes would have gone by uh, before, you know, between seeing it. So maybe, you know, so they could kind of pull that off. But in the marathon viewing of today, it's very, very apparent. Not a yeah, bad very thing. Apparent. Not a bad Not thing. Complaining. Very, very apparent. Uh, and, and like you say, as a kid, there was only, was, there were only, maybe three or four of these recurring characters that eventually I would start to go, Hey, wait a minute. Were, weren't you in the silver mine? Weren't you in the, you know, you'd start to pick up on those, but it was really only in, in when it went to syndication and I could actually sit down every afternoon and watch an episode where you would start to realize that, wait a minute, you were the bad professor last week now this week you're the good guy hmm and that was a common thing in television in general i think until about the yeah. 1970s you know late in the 1970s they started realizing people you know recognized these guys as having been on several episodes playing several different characters yeah, and, and and they started being conscious of that but before that yeah. you know you had your stock actors that you would just go with Absolutely. One of my favorite Westerns at the time, and in the 50s and early 60s in the United States, if you're going to watch TV, you're going to have to watch Westerns. And uh, one of my favorite, again, with the dual identity theme, was Have Gun Will Travel with Richard Boone. Uh, you know, being all dressed and nice in the beginning of the episode, reading the paper, getting his mystery, and then going off and putting the black outfit on and going to save people. Um, they did the same thing. They would have recurring... Uh, characters that in one episode he was the marshal in the little town he visited and the next episode he might be the guy he was going after to bring back to justice so it was very typical in the 50s and 60s to have a group of actors for your show very typical so now we move on to our final episode of season one which is really the first episode ever made mm -hmm. the unknown people part one and two which was superman and the mole men but it's listed as Season 1, Episodes 25 and 26. Interestingly, both aired on the same evening, August 10, 1953. Clark Kent and Lois Lane travel to Silsby, Silsby, Texas, site of the deepest well ever drilled. But when they arrive, the well is being shut down, and the oil company manager present isn't saying why. 
Meanwhile, two short beings with large heads and furry hands come up from the well to explore. Luke Benson leads a mob of townspeople wanting to kill the unknown people. Despite Superman's efforts to calm things down, the mob has tracked down the two creatures at the top of a dam and are trying to kill them. When the mob doesn't, what the mob doesn't know is the creatures cause things they touch to glow in the dark and may be radioactive. One of the unknown people is shot while atop the dam and Superman catches him before he falls into the water. He takes him to Silsby Hospital. Superman, in his Clark Kent identity, assists the doctor who operates on the creature. <laughs> the doctor discovers his patient has all the organs and internal body structure as humans. Meanwhile, the Luke Benson-led mob tries to kill the other visitor from the center of the earth. The creature escapes, later bringing up more of his people along with a weapon. Superman races to, dis to defuse an explosive situation. I love this episode. Uh, I do too. I, I think it's great. Um, there's a couple of scenes excised from Superman and the Mole Man in the two-part one. One of them's the the big long chase scene in part two, where they're after the little Ewok fella. That's a lot longer in Superman and the uh, and the Mole Man. Um, you're not really missing much. It went on too long in this episode, let alone in the film. And there's a conversation in part two which kind of explains why Clark's missing that they excised from the episode. But mo mostly, it, it stands up as an episode of the show. What I liked about this one, it's a very slow-paced and measured drop to a plea to tolerance and understanding. With, I mean, probably the, 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 the communist menace, the red menace social commentary is in there. They're denied that that's in there. But I think watching it from our perspective today, it's more than apparent that's what they're commenting on. Um, mm -hmm. The fact that it was shot for the big screen doesn't mean any difference whatsoever when you actually watch it as a two-parter. I presume they didn't shoot it in widescreen or anything like that. The acting and the scripting seem a lot more subtle and low-key in this two-parter than, than even the first season, where it was a, a very different show to what it became. Some of the, the bigotry from Luke Benson is just sickening from today's standards, so I don't know what it was like then. But it's the more effective casual prejudice that the nurse, when she talks to Clark, that kind of thing, that it does really well at highlighting that this is a show with a conscience. Um, it's George Reeves' first appearance in the role. He's absolutely fantastic in it. He's so charismatic, especially as Clark, and he's got such a wonderful chemistry with Phyllis Coates, it's a shame they weren't allowed to carry on, especially seen as ironically, this ends up being the, both her first and last appearance in the role. It's just amazingly ahead of its time. Its message of tolerance and understanding is, is still worth espousing. It, there's a wonderful bit in the middle of it where, where Superman tries to reason with Spilsbury and the town folk, and they reply by shooting him. Just they're not interested in talking to him, which I just thought was wonderfully cynical and a wonderfully honest condemnation of human nature. My only real issue with it is in part two, Superman just disappears midway through act one and then we don't see him again for ages. But again, he is a bit of an urban myth in this story, which was kind of a, a running thing during the first season. But I thought this was a remarkable piece of wonderful 50s B-movie filmmaking, not just a Superman story, but it's a great little B-movie science fiction story 
more of this would have been appreciated because it was absolutely fantastic. Yeah, the first time I saw it was as the the movie itself, and it plays as such a fun little 50s B-science fiction horror type movie. You know, I, I really, there's not much I can add to what Andy said. Uh, you know, my, my favorite thing about this is how Superman, throughout the entire episode, is just trying to talk to these people. And he's just like, you know, like the little girls playing with with, with the, the mole man and the mother comes in and screams. And it's up to Superman to point out, you know, the little girl was fine. It was the mother that freaked out. And that's what frightened the girl. So y'all need to shut up is basically. <laughs> and that, that's kind of the moral I take away from this. Superman has had enough of everybody's crap in Silsby. I mean, he's just he's just tired of this town. And Luke Benson in particular, he the, the thing I like about Luke is that he's not a straw man villain. I mean, he's kind of set up to be. But even then he he kind of represents something that's that's a little deeper. He's not Yes, he's there to be taken down, but what they do with him transcends that sort of thing. You know, when he runs in to the house after Superman tells him not to, I'm just like, wow, you're okay. You obviously you don't know who Superman is, so maybe he doesn't scare you. Maybe this guy in a cape. But you know, if I would have seen somebody take off into the air like like that, maybe I'd get a little freaked out. But it is, you know, at a time when pleas for tolerance may have been and and I didn't live through the era so I'm only going on what I you know what I read in books and and, and seeing documentaries and stuff it seemed like this was kind of you know the the other end of that of that red menace you know we're you know we're scared of subversives and stuff i mean superman actually says you're acting like nazi stormtroopers which in 1951 would have had so much resonance to people because the war really wasn't all that far off in the past. I mean, it was six years after World War II ended. So to have him say that, it, to me, was kind of a bold move to make on the part of the filmmakers. A couple of uh, things with this one. Uh, the scene with the little girl, I find to be incredibly reminiscent of Frankenstein. Oh, yeah. And and I think that was intentional. I, I <laughs> can't imagine that it was that similar without it being uh only this one you know he didn't really he didn't kill her uh unlike in frankenstein but i think it shows the innocence of the creature when presented with the innocent little girl who doesn't fear him uh and i and i like really like that uh i like the fact that superman doesn't want to save luke benson but does so because his morals require him to uh you know he, he's disgusted by him uh and and i thought that was great i feel sorry for the town uh that the local visiting reporter has to uh, assist on operations because they only have one doctor (laughs) 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 and i and i just like in general the way george reeves played the part like andy said he's incredibly charismatic but he's also very no nonsense in this episode there isn't that wink of the eye that you get in other episodes to the audience. You know, he's very, very serious, but still has that charisma, despite the fact that he's not winking to the audience. And he shows you why he got that part in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. This guy, 
owned the screen when he walks on in spite of it being black and white or whatever. It, he just really owned it. Uh, he and Phyllis Coates particularly, I think, show off their chemistry in this particular episode. Um, I saw this first as the unknown people, uh, the two-parter. Uh, as did uh, I. I did not see the movie until the 80s when it came out on VHS tape. Well, I saw it, uh, uh, again, I, it was probably sometime in the late 60s, early 70s, the local movie theater here, that uh, uh, even into the late 60s would still show a lot of old-time movies and old-time stuff on Saturday mornings, primarily for for those of us who were still kids. But it was the late 60s, so I was a teenager, and they showed uh, uh, the moment. So I actually saw it in the theater on the big screen the first time I saw it, uh, the mole men, not unknown people, but as a movie, I saw it on the big screen as a movie, uh, in 1960, uh, probably 65, 66, 67, something in that time period. Um, and, um, uh, it was thrilling to watch it in, as a movie on the big screen. Um, but uh, seeing it for the first time as a kid on television as the unknown people, uh, it freaked me out a little bit, but it, it, was, uh, it really didn't. I was more on the side of, of the moment. I think the way it was shot and the way the story was told, uh, the viewer, uh, we knew right up front, pretty other than the glowing stuff that they gave off, we were pretty much on their side. We were like the little girl with the ball. Uh, I didn't see them as a threat at all, even as a little kid. Until uh, they go and get the big ray gun. And then they got the big ray gun, and I thought, okay, well, that's pretty cool. Um, Which but, is not at all a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> not at all. Not at all a vacuum cleaner. I love the way the one has to kind of kneel down and let the other one put it on his back. So put it on his back. <laughs> love that. Uh, the one who put it on his back, no, or the one who was holding it, uh, was one of the munchkins in Wizard of Oz, by the way. Well, they definitely had that look about them, too. They, yeah. You know, even the makeup and everything as it was, if they, you could have put them right on the set of the Wizard of Oz and they, nobody would have noticed them. Nobody would have noticed them, yeah. And it was a funny line when the guy, you know, uh, what's-his-face, Ben what's-his-face, is saying, you saved my life, you didn't, and you're, oh, that's more than you deserve. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. I also love the scene when, uh, after they shoot at Superman or Lois, and he tells them to get back inside, he says, obviously you can't be trusted to have those guns, so I'm going to take them all away from you. And just start strolling into the middle of this mob, Fighting them, lifting them, throwing them, taking their guns away, and breaking them. Uh, okay. Superman's big and he's in charge. Okay. Done. And I particularly loved how at the end Superman went down to the to the cavernous creature and they all say Yubnub. I was I was kinda of surprised. <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> I mean, whatever. I mean, and of course, in the in in the in the 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 special edition, that that music has changed, which is completely disappointing. But still, <laughs> that was a long way to go for a joke. I apologize. <laughs> it was a decent payoff. It was fine. Yeah. Uh, Luke is played by Jeff Corey, who went on to have a fantastic career, and he's an excellent actor. Probably best known for being in one of the later Star Treks, but he's been in tons of stuff. If you IMDb. Hmm. Who did he play in Star Trek? 
He was in the Requiem for Methuselah episode, I think. I think he plays the tall, skinny drink of water girl's dad. Oh. I'm going to have to, next time I see that one, I'll have to take note. Hmm. All right, I guess we're ready for our synopsis of season two. Thus ends season one. And and Very- the biggest the biggest negative of season one ending is the loss of Phyllis Coates because she was oh, terrific yeah. and yeah. you know even even with the knowledge of people such as ourselves as to how good she was I think she still goes down in history as somewhat underappreciated. I agree, she does. totally. Yeah, because I think a lot of people uh, because Noel Neal had the part for so long after that, um, uh, a lot of people, even my age group. Uh, uh, people, when they think of Lois Lane, will think of Noel Neal as Lois Lane. Uh, but to me, my favorite always—I uh, just don't see how anybody's ever going to pass uh, Phyllis Coates. Um, and there's been some good ones, I think, in Smallville. Uh, what's her name? Erica Durance. Durance. I wanted to say Erica Shong for a sec, but um, Erica Durance, I thought, did a terrific job uh, as Lois. Terry Hatcher, first season. Lois and Clark was excellent in that first season. Um, uh, you know, so they're, they're uh, second season that we're getting ready to talk about. Uh, I think Noel Neal was a terrific Lois Lane in this second season, but um, it's it's just really hard when you just compare them all. If you could line them all up and show the best scene of any one of them, Phyllis Coates will to me always be Lois Lane. And uh, she's the one I think of. If somebody says, gee, we need a Lois Lane, I'm thinking, where's Phyllis Coates? Absolutely uh, uh, beautiful. You know, uh, when when I think of Lois Lane, I think of somebody who is not only so attractive but so intelligent that this man who could basically have anything is totally infatuated with her. Yes. Uh, And I can see Phyllis Coates inspiring that to some extent. And But after her, the next one who I saw... You know, who you mentioned his first season, Terry Hatcher, because she was just so hot. She was hot. <laughs> hot. And didn't Phil, uh, no. But yes, Phyllis Coates actually played Terry Hatcher's mother in that yes, episode. she did. So. It, in the final it, it was, episode uh, of season one. Yeah, I, I, you know, and talk about a little geek nerdy moment. Boy, when that came on screen. Because uh, I had no idea Phyllis Coates was going to be on that. I don't read credits. I didn't read anything in advance, you know, of Lois and Clark. So when Phyllis Coates came on screen as Lois, Terry Hatcher's mother, uh, and I'm watching it alone. I couldn't find anybody. Hey, 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 over here. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm having the little geek moment all by myself of Lois Lane being Lois Lane's mother. It was terrific. Doesn't get any better than Phyllis Coates. Uh, Noel Neal wore the same suit but didn't fit the same way. Well, you know, it, it was, it was, you know, Andy and I were kind of talking about this the other day. It was, it was, you know, they changed the tone of the series. So, you know, comparisons can be made, but some of them might be unfair. But for me to see, when I think of Lois Lane, I think of somebody who's no nonsense, who's very single-minded, who will put herself in the middle of the situation to, not only get to the story, but get to the the truth of what's going on. But would 
I never got much of a sense of an attraction between Lois and Superman in this series, except for a couple minor, epi- you know, like a couple episodes where it was brought up. Right. And I, I, I think that's that actually was to the series' credit, because then she's not the woman in love with Superman. She's this important, vital part of the, you know, the show. Right. And you can't get around the fact that Phyllis Coates was very easy on the eyes, as everyone Ugh. has been saying. I mean, she she also has the best scream of any Lois. Yes. And, you know, and she was the, presented as a very independent, strong, mm-hmm. smart woman. And then later on with Noel Neal, they went to the, you know, oh, she's infatuated with Superman. She wants to marry him. And, right. and you know, that that's much more cartoonish. Yeah, Phyllis Coates' Lois was what you think Lois would have had to have been at that time. She's fought to get herself in a respected position in a predominantly male environment. And then by the time you get to the third season, they've just watered that down to she's the girl who writes the Lovelorn column. Yeah. And it's just it's just very disappointing for those of us that like our Lois to be strong and independent and feisty. Right. Well, even going back to that, the first thing we talked about with the uh, Superman on Earth, in the very last scene of Superman on Earth, when she's right up in Clark's face talking about, and one thing, Mr. Kent, while every other news person is trying breaking his or her neck, and Clark had to say, or her neck, to get to the story, how did you, I mean, she was on top of it right then. How did you get there? Why are you taking my story? It was just, uh, wow, fireworks. It was just terrific, right from the get-go. And Phyllis Coates' Lois was no one's hostage. There are any number of times where she's punched somebody in the face who's tried to take (laughs) her out. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, they they had to, in Night of Terror, which I mentioned, which we're not talking about in this, but in Night of Terror, uh, terrific episode. It was pretty much a Lois episode. And uh, in that first, in an early scene where the bad guy comes in after Lois has found the, the woman behind the desk knocked out or hurt, and the bad guy comes in and they start the fight, there's a quick cut there because... Uh, Either she missed her mark or he missed his mark, and he literally cold-cocked her. And uh, the producers and directors were concerned uh, not as much for Phyllis Coates as they were for, okay, get some makeup on that. We need to finish this scene. Yeah, yeah. let's finish it right now before the bruise comes up. Come on, before quick, the bruise quick, quick. Comes up. Yeah, Classy. wake her up. Let's get her back well, into this. Classy producers. Should we go into Classy season two? Producers. Season two. What's it all about, Andy? Uh, well, the search for a sponsor concluded with Kellogg's taking that role and cameras rolled on the second season of The Adventures of Superman in June 1953. But the two-year gap between the production of season one and season two meant changes before and behind the camera. Executive producer Robert Maxwell had, in the interim, been tasked with steering the further adventures of canine crime fighter Lassie and national periodicals needed a new producer for the show. They didn't have to look very far. Whitney Ellsworth is already a well-known face on properties National Comics had developed for the cinema, having worked on the Fleischer Superman cartoons, the Batman serials, and Congo Bill. 
In turn, Ellsworth brought with him Superman comic book story editor Maud Weisinger, a story editor for the series. In the hands of these two men, the series took on a more science fiction flavour. Out with the crime noir thrillers of season one, Ellsworth had particular disdain for the Evil 3 episode, claiming it would never have been made under his watch. And in were meteorites, time travel and robots. Out too was the brusque, no-nonsense, punch-first, don't-even-bother-asking-questions of portrayal of Superman, and in was a more friendly and avuncular Big Brother approach to the character. If the first season was the Golden Age Superman, seasons two and six saw a definite shift to the Silver Age. Ellsworth also streamlined production. The cast wore the same clothes to make shooting multiple episodes at once easier. Office sets were redressed for constant reuse, and the same guest actors were used more than once in different roles. In front of the camera, as we've already discussed, Lois Lane actress Phyllis Coates elected not to return for the second season. Coates had been offered employment on another series, so the role of Lois Lane was assigned to a new actress, Noel Neal. Neal was, in fact, the first actress to play Lois, having essayed the role in the Kirk Allen serials in the 40s, and her Lois was distinctly watered down from the strident, no-nonsense woman-in-a-man's world that Coates portrayed. The shift in tone didn't affect the viewers, or indeed the enjoyable script. Season 2 features as many good episodes as Season 1, with Reeves' charm and natural charisma being allowed to dominate, and even being given a chance to strut his actorly stuff in episodes like Panic in the Sky and The Face and the Voice. Opening up the series gave Jack Larson's terminal teenager Jimmy Olsen a bigger slice of the pie, and the Kellogg's sponsorship deal saw the cast earn some extra money for Hawking cereal. Well, the cast minus Lois Lane. Kellogg's felt that Lois having breakfast with bachelor Clark Kent would seem a little untoward, but apparently were perfectly okay with Clark and Jimmy sharing a nice breakfast after a night of torrid passion. <laughs> with 26... <laughs> With 26 more episodes in the can, some confusion remained as production wrapped as to whether Reeves, who was tiring of the role, would return for a mooted season three. We're, we're, we're putting so much slash fiction into, into the adventures of Superman. Which, which, my we, my I, favorite I, one of them was when Clark, Perry, and Jimmy were having a breakfast <laughs> together. <laughs> I don't want there to. Lot, yeah. the there was a lot. There was a lot going on. <laughs> I guess they should have just had them having, you know, breakfast at their office that they went into work so early, and then you don't have to worry about who was sleeping with who. See, see, the the real tragedy of that isn't that you know Lois doesn't get to be in the commercials; is that Noel Neal didn't get to get paid extra money to appear in a commercial, and their Whereas, salaries were apparently not incredibly high. Yeah, Very so and. And they, and the, this was before syndication was even, you know, a thought. So they, they were only paid for a certain number of viewings. So, uh, you know, sh- airings of the show. So, yeah, that, that's the Kellogg's commercials. Uh, they included one on the score that they released for the series, uh, where you have Perry White uh, talking about Kellogg's cornflakes, which is just kind of odd. But, Kellogg's was a big sponsor for the radio series, so it felt like a natural fit. Well, tell you what, Michael, why don't you play that commercial now? This is Mr. Perry White's house, and inside, Perry White of the Daily Planet is just sitting down to breakfast. Mr. White is one of those remarkable men who is in complete control of himself in any crisis. Calm, cool-headed, easygoing, even-tempered. Where are those Kellogg's cornflakes? If someone doesn't bring me another package within two seconds, I'll... I'll... 
Two seconds? This sounds like a job for Superman. About time. Mr. White's a man who always gets his way. But even Superman couldn't keep everybody in Kellogg's cornflakes all the time. Every morning, more people run out of Kellogg's cornflakes than any other cereal. They taste best to more people. Always have. Still do. That's why it's so easy to run out of them. So anytime you buy any cereal of any kind, pick up a spare package of Kellogg's cornflakes. You'll like them. I don't know about you guys, but I really want a bowl of Kellogg's crusty nut cornflakes now. <laughs> uh, well, we'll have to finish recording first because we're not having breakfast with you. Crunch, crunch. Oh, like you said yesterday morning. <laughs> yeah, when, oh. I, when I was in the UK. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you had a plane to catch and you just left us crunched up dollar bills on my table. What can I do with dollars, Spataro? <laughs> hey, go this to a country gonna where have the greatest, money. This is going to have the greatest <laughs> gag reel ever. Uh, we get uh, show? Yeah, we're getting a bit tawdry here. Uh, yeah. So we start off season two. We are actually jumping right into season two, episode number seven, Superman in Exile, which aired on October 31st, Halloween of 1953. Superman narrowly prevents disaster at an atomic facility. In doing so, he has become totally irradiated and will kill living things just by being close to them. This forces Superman into exile, while the atomic scientists try to figure out what to do. Meanwhile, criminals kidnap Lois Lane, figuring Superman wouldn't dare to dare try to apprehend them because of his condition. And this one basically has a uh, reappearance of the Fortress of Solitude from the stolen costume, the cabin in the uh, mountains. <laughs> and and in, just an interesting tidbit before we go on to a discussion of it. Uh, Apparently, in the scene when Lois is kidnapped, and I did not see this, but apparently she is wearing a wedding ring. Hmm. Oh. oh, I didn't notice mm. that. Didn't notice. Need to go back and look at that for the seven hundredth time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I remember this episode as a kid. You know, you talked about uh, scary episodes earlier, Bob, and I remember this one that. I was actually somewhat frightened by that atomic machine that was going on as a young kid. That that did seem scary, and like in my mind, that's what an, an atomic plant was like, with that popping and flames coming out and flames coming out. Yeah, you know, I mean, it was far it was, out of here and stick it in that one. <laughs> it was really a very <laughs> rudimentary uh, special effect they used to create that thing, but it was effective, and I think it was more the sound effects than it was the visuals. Hmm. Mm. Well, this is the first second season episode that we leapt into after watching the first. Um, I, I thought the differences were, were pretty evident. The lighting, even in black and white, is brighter than it was in the first series. The storylines are instantly more sci-fi. I thought the special effects were pretty good for the time, I have mm-hmm. to say. I thought I really did like that saving the nuclear pile was hard work for him. And he, you actually see him sweating profusely. Now, that could be more that the actor was sweating rather than, than the character, but I quite liked that that was shown on, on screen. It's a Superman has to struggle to get things done. Um, Reeves is still a bit short-tempered and brusque in this one. He would he would mellow that out as season two went along before we got to season three when he was everybody's best friend. Noel Neal was fine in this one. She's more watered down and more gullible than Phyllis Coates ever was, but 
you know, we we said in the the little the little tribute to Phyllis that we did at the beginning. I don't know that she would have enjoyed playing this version of Lois Lane. I don't think she would have liked it. I think she would have seen it as a come down after the stuff that she was given in season one. So Neil plays what she's given very well. She's just not given what Coates was given. Um, the ending in this one's very, very corny, but there's something just eminently charming about it. So it's, it's a good little installment. I really did like it. Yeah, I like this one too. I, um, um, uh, there are some funny stuff. I think there's there's lots of funny stuff, particularly when he's up in the cabin by himself and he's listening to you know easy listening music on the radio and just kind of pacing around and his fingerprints are still painted on the telephone and uh, uh, of course the really old fashioned telephones. Uh, I love those old phones. Uh, but I thought there were some funny moments in this. But on the serious side, as a kid, I, I'm like you, Paul. That that uh, nuclear chamber thing seemed dangerous even to Superman, where he had to, uh, as soon as he walks in the, the room and he's trying to get close, and it blows him back and pushes him up against the wall, and he's struggling to take the rod out of one hole and stick it in the other one. Uh, it uh, was, um, you know, both frightening and funny at the same time time uh and uh here this guy's contaminated and he takes him out and gives him to the other guys and yeah uh, a little inconsistent there yeah a little bit don't get near me but oh here i'll kick the the uh, geiger counter with my foot to within an inch of your foot but uh no there's some very (laughs) funny uh science going on but uh, as a show, completely, I agree with Andy. It's a completely uh, uh, watchable show. It's a cute moment at the end. Uh, and uh, and we see in this what we're going to see uh, in a lot of the second season episodes, which uh, I think they're perfect. There is a lot of really good episodes in the second season, probably as many as there are in the first season, even though the attitudes are different. But this is a great transition season uh, from season two really is uh, uh, a transition between what we had in season one and what we're going to have uh, um, in the future with the color episodes coming up uh, later. Uh, But even in the black and white in this and the rest of the shows we talk about at season two, as Andy mentioned, even though they're still in black and white, we're not seeing those heavy shadows, the contrasts of, of kind of spooky lighting or eerie lighting. It's almost like somebody said, let's turn on all the lights now. Let's brighten this sucker up. And, um, and we do see a different Lois Lane, much different Lois Lane than before. But uh, uh, not bad. Not bad. Just different. But I agree. I'm not sure that Phyllis Coates could have played or had wanted to have played this Lois Lane. Uh, and this Lois Lane, by the way, uh, is different, even though it's Noel Neal playing or reprising her role as Lois from the Kirk Allen. In the Kirk Allen series, uh, she was a little closer uh, to the Phyllis Coates type of Lois Lane. A little more, let's get the scoop, and Clark, why are you waiting? Let's go, let's go. Uh, and not quite as gullible as she would become in this season, and then, of course, moving on from here. Um, basically just, you know, wanting to be Superman's 
life. Tom? Yeah, th this episode was hugely influential on me. I mean, as, as a young Superman fan, uh, seeing him feel so much guilt over killing the two people in the stolen costume that he leaves the planet for an extended <laughs> period of time and then ends up, oh, wait, that's a different exile. I, uh, I, I apologize for that. I'm, I'm getting myself screwed up. It's, it's probably the lack of sleep. The, uh, <laughs> funny science to the side, uh, I, I really enjoyed this episode mainly because there were so many like kind of quirky fifties sci-fi elements in it. But to me, it is really interesting seeing Superman just hanging around a cabin, talking on the phone, reading a book. I mean, it's just like, you, you don't think of him doing that in the costume when he's in his apartment. Like he would be dressed as, I mean, he sleeps in PJs for crying out loud. So, um, <laughs> but, but the thing I, it is those smaller moments that really stick with me for this one. Him on the phone with Lois in the Superman costume as Clark, trying to convince her that he's not going to be coming back to the office, but it has nothing to do with the fact that he's Superman and that he's irradiated. He's following Superman. So that's why I won't be around. So it's just a complete coincidence. You know, going forward... Lois trying to think that Clark is Superman comes up again and again and again, especially in the episodes that we cover. But the, it's it's never, you know, that two and two is never fully put together for her. So, and, and just, just the ending where Clark pops up and he's just like got this, you know, cat ate, that ate the canary look on his face of being happy because, you know, he's not going to kill everybody around him. But it's also the self-sacrifice of Superman. The Superman. The only reason Superman can't do anything is because by doing something, he would put people in danger. And that's the only reason Superman wouldn't act. And then he had to figure out a way to do it. Now, figuring it out is kind of wonky. I'm going to go get hit by lightning, which is going to somehow, you know, decontaminate me. But, you know, you know, if it was a comic book, he'd go and fly into the sun come back and everything would be okay. So just a very enjoyable episode. Lightning was used quite a bit in these episodes as a saving grace to decontaminate him, to set off a bomb, to <clears throat> bring rain down to end a forest fire. He used lightning to his advantage many times in these episodes. He was the only and, one that could and, fly up there and get to him, I guess. Yeah, little known fact, all the use of lightning was kind of a silent middle finger to Fawcett Publications and Captain Marvel, which DC was was about to win a court case. Oh, with yeah, time, so. Shazam. <laughs> you owe money never, you said that. Never. <laughs> <laughs> never occurred to me. I think this was one of George Reeves' finer acting performances in this particular episode because there were often parts where he didn't have that much to do where he was sitting around the cabin and yet right. he was still engaging despite that uh and i think it's a perfect transition for the next episode which i think may well be his finest acting performance of the entire series which is panic in the sky which is season two episode 12 and aired on december 5th 1953 Superman rams a giant asteroid on a collision course with Earth. The impact causes the asteroid to now orbit the planet. However, Superman is staggered as he returns to Earth. He manages to change back to Clark Kent, apparently a reflex action, but doesn't remember who he is. 
Meanwhile, the orbiting asteroid still presents hazards for Earth. Only Superman can place an explosive device that will demolish the asteroid. And no one, including Clark, knows where Superman is. I think this was another great one. Uh, I, again, I think his acting in this particular episode is showing Superman to not only have lost his memory in a much more believable way than many people on shows at this time, because it was not an uncommon story trope, uh, but, but to do it in a way that they, uh, that it was believable, but also to show him as tired and beleaguered and, and, and just, you know, at wit's end, I thought he did a marvelous acting job in this particular episode. Yeah, Reeves, Reeves is excellent in this one. It's the only time he was allowed to play Superman as despondent and he, he rises to the challenge. It's rightly viewed as a classic, Panic in the Sky. It's a tale of heroism in the face of certain doom. It's so popular and so memorable, it's been remade numerous times in other incarnations of uh, of Superman, but I still think this first one's the best of all of them, even with some minor little problems. Perry Lewis and Jimmy see Clark in bed without his glasses, and yet never comment on his resemblance to Superman at all. And just for no readily apparent reason, when he first lands back on Earth with no memory, the first thing he thinks to do is go, I know, I'll put on these clothes I have in my cape pouch and these glasses, which I evidently <laughs> don't need. But whatever, I'll just wear them because it seems quite good. It is also the first time, the closest thing, really, we ever got to a shirt rip in this oh, series. I was going to say that. Yeah, that was in mm-hmm. my notes. Yeah. Uh, there's one other episode where Jimmy's at the door and uh, he's... Um, Putting the sh- he's putting the shirt on over top of the suit. But this one is the closest we ever see of him taking the clothes, opening it and ripping it and seeing the suit under the uh, Clark Kent clothes with Jimmy standing right there behind him. Uh, for the longest time, uh, I used to have an Amiga computer, and for the longest time, that scene was my desktop picture, was my... Uh, background on my desktop was him opening his shirt with Jimmy standing right behind him. Because uh, it's the closest we ever got to him. Most of the time it was take the glasses off, take the hat off, loosen the tie, and run out of the scene. This one, oh yeah, he's got the costume on under it. That's cool. It was amazing. And it looked very much like the Wayne Boring shot of Superman, of Clark Kent changing into Superman. Yes. Uh, which struck me, especially in this episode, which it, the, 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 the funny part of this episode to me is how disinterested the scientist is in the fact that the earth is about to be destroyed. It seems like every time, every time he's on screen, he's just got this very vague sense of aloofness. And I'm like, really? You know, you're the one telling everyone that they're going to die and you don't seem to particularly care. So. Uh, Andy mentioned that this has been remade. It was uh, remade in the Adventures of Superboy television series, uh, season three, Superboy Lost. And Lois and Clark, uh, in their first season, did an episode called All Shook Up. And in all of them, Superman gets amnesia from a meteor. Uh, This is, I think, the best of the three. While All Shook Up has some very good acting on the part of some of the actors in Lois and Clark... And uh, I was just surprised that the Superboy series decided, you know, it was really weird for them to kind of remake this one. Um, this is just, from all points, I mean, it's, I love the scene where Clark's trying to work out how the, he, he knows 
he's Superman. He doesn't remember that he's Superman. So he asks Jimmy, is it the costume? Like, he's almost saying, if I put on the costume, will I have the powers then? Or do I just have the powers all the time? And then, you know, and then, you know, Jimmy is very upfront. You know, it's not the it's not the costume. Superman told me that. Why they had that conversation, I have absolutely no idea. But apparently it was very, it was important enough that Jimmy, ha- you know, remembered it so emphatically. And uh, then when because, he... Uh, it's because actually uh, they did put that in because there were a rash of kids putting on Superman Halloween costumes and jumping off the roofs of their houses, thinking they could fly. They had, there were a lot of PSAs. In fact, Superman or George Reeves, uh, I think there was a, a show called Stamp Day or something, and he mentions it there as well. One of the kids asks him if they have a costume like his, could they fly? And he goes into it. So they had to actually say, so this is the only episode where they put it in, uh, where they wanted to make a specific point of that, that it's not the costume. Only There's Superman a- can do super things. Yeah, there's a color episode where he he repeats that as well. So that that makes a lot of sense that, you know, that they, you know, I I think here it's just nice that they kind of put it organically into the story. Yeah, it fit in the story Uh, really well, I thought. And then, you know, he puts on the costume and he breaks the table and that's when everything kind of clicks with him. Mm. And it's, it's just such a... Such it's one of the classics. It really is. But to me, Panic in the Sky will always be Brainiacs come to Earth uh, to start a ruckus. So Superman gathers up a bunch of heroes to go face him uh, on the Skull Ship. As Gee, one I of wonder the... why you would want that one as your. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that I'm a post-crisis guy or anything, but no. again, that goes into how influential this series was to the creators of the Superman in the post-crisis era. I mean, in, in the introduction, Roger Stern's introduction to the Panic in the Sky uh, trade paperback, he's like, Panic in the Sky? I love that. A meteor's coming to Earth and all that. And I was just like, that's a that's a really funny way to to kind of say this is where we got the idea for this, the, the name of the storyline from. So, but again, you know, if you, if you look at top ten lists of this... Uh, of this series of episodes of the adventures of Superman, for some reason for the, uh, whatever happened to the man of tomorrow is always on the list. But I think that's because when they have top 10 Superman lists, they have to put in an Alan Moore story, but this one is invariably in there as well. This one has to be on everybody's mm-hmm. top 10 Superman stories. Uh, and it's got flaws. I mean, technical flaws are, you know, all over the place in this one, science and special effects. Uh, uh I think even on a, eight-inch black and white set, you could still see the string holding the asteroid as it's... Yes, you could. I, I saw that. I was like, you know, but on the other hand, the asteroid looks really good in most of the shots. Yeah, it does. It does. But periodically, you see that little string. But the, that still wasn't, to me, the, the, the technical thing that stuck out the most, and I remember this even as a kid, I thought, oh, they got birds on the deserted asteroid. you know when he flies up and he's got the bomb there at the very end and and he says well here goes whoever i am well as he's saying that it's quiet you hear the birds chirping in the background and it's the same you know it's all of a sudden it's the desert outside the lot of california there's the you know the little bronson canyon you know yeah exactly it's bronson canyon and you could see it and see the stuff but 
it fit. It, it didn't really take you out of it. Um, although, watching it now, I cannot not hear that bird chirping when he says that line. Well, no matter who I am, here goes. There's, there's also the uh, continuity and consistency with the closet. And he opens it up, and there's a couple of uh, uniforms in there, which, you know, directly contradicts the stolen costume in which it was right. clear. Well, he, he only has the one costume that his mother made for him. Well, I looked at well, that as saying he learned his lesson from the stolen exactly. costume <laughs> and had more made. Now, did he go home and say, Sarah, Mom? I need about four more of these. <laughs> yeah, Mom, have you got any more like Kryptonian cloth left? <laughs> this way, if somebody breaks into my apartment, they can steal several costumes. <laughs> they would uh, actually they would uh, explain it away in the stolen costume that the only reason he doesn't have it on in that episode is because he had to go for a physical for work, so he had exactly. left the home. He went for a physical at work. Now. I don't know about your physicals, but in a lot of physicals, don't they still, like, take a little blood? Oh, yeah, they have to. It's, yeah, how, exactly. they, it's how they figure out what your cholesterol I and all that doubt is. I guess at that point, blood <laughs> I, guess, I guess a physical in the 50s, though, is a doctor with a cigarette hanging out of his mouth going, smoke? Okay. You eat a lot of red meat? On his forehead. Yeah, yeah. You eat a lot of red meat? Yeah, keep that up. That's good, yeah, too. Yeah, so. You start every morning with black coffee, right? Yeah, okay, okay. You're Absolutely. healthy. Go back to work. Get back to work. Let's move along to uh, our next episode. Jungle Devil. Jungle Devil, Season 2, Episode 14, aired on December 19th, 1953. Daily Planet reporters Clark, Lois, and Jimmy head into the treacherous jungle searching for a scientific expedition which has vanished. The local natives prove quite hostile to the intruders because the jeweled eye of a native idol has apparently been stolen. This is the episode in which Clark's alter ego Superman not only wrestles a gorilla, but also uses his bare hands to convert a lump of coal into a diamond. This I, I'm gonna be go ahead. I'm gonna be completely honest about this episode. I really wasn't into it until the moment where they have Clark tied to the stake and they light it on fire. There's that burst of smoke and suddenly he's standing there as Superman. And literally I'm sitting in the back of my chair watching this episode, kind of tuning out when that happened, I sat up. I'm like, Oh, that was great. <laughs> Why couldn't we have had more of that? And then he fights a guy in a monkey costume. Oh wow. Okay. This, this, there is redemption in this episode. <laughs> this one always stood out in my mind. And I remember this as a kid, as it's standing out, with the whole thing with him compressing the coal and putting so much pressure that he's able to change it into a diamond. That was, you know, that, that was really uh, what impressed me as a kid. And I remember taking a piece of coal and trying to squeeze it. Actually, I think it was a charcoal briquette at the time. It was uh, charcoal briquette that I tried. Yeah. Right. A little charcoal. Uh, there's a couple of points in this one. Is the woman in the expedition, Gloria Harper is her name on the in the show is played by Doris Singleton, who I remember very well as being Carolyn Appleby on I Love Lucy. Mm. And uh, there's a uh, goof in this one that George Reeves plays off very, very well. Uh, when they're in the Daily Planet offices and Lois comes walking in, he has a knife in his hands for the safari, which I guess he mistakenly thought was a switchblade, so he goes to close it, but it is not a switchblade. 
and if you watch it closely, you see he kind of just like flips it and takes it out of camera, and uh, he just you know handled it very well. And I think that goes from the era of uh, a time when you you knew they didn't want to do retakes, and if you made a mistake, you just kept going and stayed in character. Good catch. I'll have to go back and look at that too. Uh, I quite like this one. I thought that this one was a, an interesting mediation on communication and tolerance. Again, as Superman comes to the aid of a bunch of explorers held captive by a tribe that only speak Ewok. Uh, there were some neat touches, although like our Clark gets out of a moving plane while it's flying wasn't adequately explained unless he didn't have little dials on the uh, on the control panel back then that said, wait a minute, somebody just opened a door and the air pressure just went down. Um, the ending, I think, would have worked better if Clark hadn't become Superman. I think this would have been much better if the tribesmen had seen that Clark did all of this and thought that he was wonderful. But I just thought this was a nice change of pace from all the Metropolis episodes. I quite liked it. I thought it was fun. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, just because of what it was, they had to have him in uniform at some point. I, I, I think your idea is, is great, and it would have played very well, but I don't think they could get away with it in that era. No, I don't think in the 50s they would have done an episode without Superman in it. I just think it would have worked better as a story if he hadn't, but I know why he did it, and it's not like, you know, he didn't ruin the episode or anything. In fact, I thought this was quite a fun one, quite enjoyed it. Any time Superman fights a man in a gorilla suit, it's to be applauded, I think. I love that was the Hulk. Yeah, especially like Michael said, that the, the, the transfer scene, the transform scene of him being tied up and then the fire and the big smoke, kabang, and now he's Superman standing there. Uh, that was a great little scene. I enjoyed that, too. And the squishing of the diamond for the first time. That was a very cool scene. Uh, but to me, even as a kid, though, the monkey suit was a monkey suit. It, uh, I laughed at that point. I, I can't even remember in many times. And I even laughed this week when I watched it again, and I went, oh, yeah, there's the zipper right up the monkey's back. <laughs> <laughs> Why would you have him turn around when you know the zipper is there? See, I was half expecting it to be revealed. Because of the, the last time we had an episode like this was in the first season, where we had some some a guy in blackface, essentially. Uh, <laughs> oh, dear. A little, little, little disappointing. But, uh, but at least they explained that it is a guy disguised as it, which is, I guess, a little less insulting. But, uh... But, you know, where they had it where basically the guy was fooling everyone into thinking he, he was somebody else. I was half expecting it to be revealed that the monkey, the, the guy in the gorilla suit, was a guy in a gorilla suit that they were trying to kind of use as a way to keep, uh, you know, outsiders from coming into their... Uh, into their village, and when it turns out that no, actually he he was a guy. It was an actual like evil spirit that Superman fought. I'm like, well, on one hand, okay, you you, you went against the expectations, so good on you. Two, <laughs> it you know it's it's Superman wrestling a guy in a monkey suit, which which as Andy kind of alluded to, was much like Lou Ferrigno fighting a guy in, in a, a monkey, monkey suit in the first or, season, or, or a bear suit, no, yeah, or a guy in a bear suit, but. <laughs> Or but it works, and, and, and you can you can look at these up. Every time they went to another country in this show, it always cracks me up because it's like obvious set. But at the same time, if you you got to put yourself in 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 the mind frame that you know they didn't have a lot of money for this kind of stuff, and the fact that they were trying to go to different locations was admirable, and you should respect it on that level. Yeah. So the 
that's kind of that's another thing that kind of saved this one for me. But I, I will admit, for most of it, I'm just like, is this? Is, uh, don't we have like around the world with Superman next? <laughs> I want to get to that one. <laughs> and on that note, anybody <laughs> else has anything to add on this one? Okay, around the world with Superman, season two, episode number twenty-six. So it was the final episode of season number two, March thirteenth, nineteen fifty-four. A blind girl enters a Daily Planet contest in which the winner will go around the world with Superman, but she has entered the contest using her mother's name, intending that she win. The mother, meanwhile, wants nothing to do with all of this, and being secretive, Clark works to figure out the puzzle, and using his supervision, determines the girl's sight can be restored. That's not actually the best synopsis, but that's the one I, that's the one I copied, sorry. Uh, two interesting points on this one. Uh, one is that it is based on a story, The Girl Who Didn't Believe in Superman, from Superman Comics number, 19, number 96 in March of 1955. <clears throat> and uh, I saw a scientific synopsis of the ending scene in which Superman carries the young girl around the world, and that said, Superman carries the little girl around the world in a couple of hours. That would mean an average speed of up to 12,000 miles per hour. <laughs> Even exotic aircraft like SR-71 have problems with extreme heat due to air friction. At one-sixteenth of that speed, an exposed human would be incinerated, assuming that she wasn't torn to pieces first. Editor's note, she also would have had trouble breathing at that speed and altitude. So it's just kind of an interesting little scientific point. <laughs> I think the episode would have been improved immeasurably if that had happened on panel. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, I would rather watch Jungle Devil four times in a row, which was not one of the better shows, but it was enjoyable enough than this super saccharine segment. It was just, there was far too much sugar in the show for my diet. I didn't buy how suddenly Clark was a social worker. I didn't get how a blind girl wrote a letter that no one knew she'd written. It was just an extended travelogue. I like, I love the bit in the middle where he uses x-ray vision to help the doctor do the operation. Because that's kind of like a, a comic thing where Superman would do the operation himself. And I actually right. preferred this, that Superman yes. guided the guy who really does have the expertise in this. I thought that was a really, really lovely touch in an, an overall tedious episode. The little girl just set my teeth on edge. She's got <laughs> dreadful line delivery. Lois is just so wishy-washy in this one compared to what she was in the first season. Give me Superman punching people back in the face, please. <laughs> I, I agree I, uh, with you on, on just about all your points, and the yeah. reason I picked this particular episode is just because it's a very well-remembered episode by a lot of people, not because it's one of the best. And though it's nice to see him do different stuff. That, that was very nice. It's nice to see him take a personal involvement in one person's life. I did like that. If only it couldn't have been such an annoying person. I think she was typical of the child genius that you'd see on TV shows in that era, and actually... Beyond that era? Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll agree. She's with... typical of, of a television child prodigy. Don't make her any more tolerable. Uh, she's still alive, by the way. Well, she went on and had it. Uh, yeah, I looked her... <laughs> 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 uh, 
wow <laughs> yeah uh, dark <laughs> uh, i did look her up uh i forgot her name now i didn't write it down but uh, she is still alive and and worked as recently in show business uh, as uh, late 80s early 90s so um she did go on to continue acting of some sort but this this would uh not one of my favorite episodes either um like Andy, I think a little too much sugar. Everybody seemed out of character. Uh, I didn't believe for a second she was blind. <clears throat> um, although there were some fun scenes and very, you know, I think taken on their own, there were some very touching moments. Uh, um, when he asked her to, when Clark Kent Superman asked her to whisper something and he went in the other room. Uh, that was a very nice little scene. I want my daddy back or whatever. That, that was very touching. But overall, um, I, I probably could have done without this episode entirely. Uh, again, not my favorite. There was another episode based on a child, I think a crippled child. Yeah, from the first ep- from the first season. It was that from the first season, all right. Where, um, again, not my favorite episode. But I thought they they handled that a little better. They came very close to child abuse and, you know, taking the crippled child's little braces, braces off. off. I mean, that, that, I mean uh, th- those were some hardcore criminals. I mean, the, the only thing yeah. that kind of saved that one was kind of the doofy guy that actually ended up befriending her. Exactly. You know, and you, you were kind of worried... Suit. You, you were kind of worried that he was going to end up, like, accidentally snapping her neck like he's, you know, from, you know, of mice and men. Of but still... No, but, uh, I, I, oddly enough, I, I. Oh, I'm sorry, sir. No, go ahead. I'm done. I actually like the girl, um, because she seems to be just kind of totally pissed off at the world, <laughs> and I was feeling that at the time I was watching this episode. Ooh. So I felt like an emotional connection. What What bothered me about this episode is they set up this mystery man that's following the family. And if this was a first season episode, he would have been a mobster and he would have tried to kill them. But it's not a first season episode. So he's just a lawyer that the father hired. But why are they trying? But he's all the way in Arabia. So what? I don't understand what's like. He left because she drove him away because apparently this woman was such a heinous bitch that she just made her husband's life miserable because she blamed him for the accident that caused their daughter to be blinded and he so he leaves but he's trying to find her and she's hiding from him even though she still loves him and isn't a fr- it's like it's really confusing what her deal is yeah. throughout the entire episode and so at the end Which I when find is true for most women. <laughs> <laughs> That's been my experience personally. I don't know about you guys. <laughs> but uh but the the problem I had with this episode and, and 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 I hate and I hated that I had this problem. But they take this very very complex situation of a broken family and a little girl that just wants her daddy back. And at the end, they wave their hands and it's all resolved. And it's just like, I, I think that's kind of unfair to kids watching this show that might be in a similar situation. Like, why can't Superman put my family back together again? 
And and maybe that's like the wrong thing to have it, but it's just it, it just it just kind of bugged me. I mean, it was cute that he flew her around the world, and you know she got her sight back. And I, I'm not much on. I, I, I'm kind of glad that he assisted the doctor and didn't perform the surgery himself because I'm Amen. not. I'm not ultra scientist Superman guy. Uh, that that's not the kind of Superman I like to really read about. I will, but it's not my preference. Mm-hmm. So. It's just, it was a cute, I mean, they didn't think in terms of ending the season, but this was a cute one to end the season on. Because mm-hmm. it's kind of like, it's got kind of this whole, I mean, around the world feeling. It's right there in the title. Right. And we and we can go with the John Byrne explanation that things in close to close proximity to Superman are protected by his aura, and that's how yeah. he was able to fly her around the world that way. Yeah. Yeah, we'll, the, we'll the, go for that. The one thing, though, that this episode drove home is that George Reeves, as an actor, was very good at working with kids. Yes. 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 Because he is he is such a... He's like a dad, almost, every time there's a kid in the scene. And, and it's very sweet. You know, when he, when he comes back into the room after she says, I wish my daddy was back, mm. he looks, like, upset. Yeah, like, that's, oh, that's, I, I, yeah. I wasn't expecting that. And, he, you know, that line of... I I don't think you wanted me to hear that. I was that actually got me for a second. I'm just like, wow, on an emotional level, I am now connecting with this episode that, like Andy said, otherwise is kind of crap. Right. That scene. That's why I say that particular scene. um, uh, To me, redeems this whole episode. Was that basically that one scene after he does all the little tricks and bending this and bending that and the little, hey, I'm Superman. Um, but that little whisper scene was, was the best. And also, like the rest of you, I'm glad that he used his supervision to direct the surgery, to aid in the surgery, but not like in the modern comic. Was it action or Superman this last year? that Action. Was it? Oh, yeah, it was Grant Morrison's action, where he actually used his thumbnail to operate. And uh, no, I, I don't mind a super smart Superman. I don't, I, you know, Silver Age, that was part of it. He was, you know, uh, as smart as Lex Luthor and all the other geniuses. He had a super intellect as well. I have no problem with that. But I do have a problem with him actually performing the surgery himself. I loved it this way much better. And like in the other episode of Unknown People, he didn't perform the surgery. The doctor was there, but he aided. Um, I don't have a problem, even though he was as Clark Kent <laughs> doing it then, but uh, I don't have a problem with him aiding professionals in their line of work. But um, taking five minutes to read every medical book in the library and then performing the surgery himself, yeah, I have a problem with. But not in this episode. I'm, I'm glad they worked it that way. And uh, the one touching scene of George Reeves with the little girl, uh, I think, saved this. The flying around uh, the planet with this footage of, uh, gee, we must be over Paris because I guess that's the Eiffel Tower. And we know we're going to be in the U.K. because we're going to see and hear, what, Big Ben? Is that really in the U.K.? Wow, I'd have never known. Thus ends Season 2. With Season 3, the episode count of The Adventures of Superman went from 26 episodes per season to only 13. Each 26-week season would feature 13 new episodes and 13 reruns of older episodes. Historically more important, though, was the fact that the new episodes of the show were now produced in color. 
This change took, a took up a large portion of the show's budget, which ultimately resulted in that reduction of the number of episodes that were produced. However, it would seem that this was not an effort to increase ratings, but only foresight on the part of the show's producers envi envisioning the coming age of syndication. Even though the new episodes were filmed in color, they were still broadcast in black and white and weren't shown in color until the 1960s. Color television had become standardized in 1953, but most viewers still only owned black and white sets and could not see the show in color anyway. The producers were apparently betting that a mass market for color television was on the horizon. This thought was correct, and the series eventually commanded ten times the asking price in syndication than that of black and white programming. Filming of the color episodes began late in 1954, but as indicated were only broadcast in monochrome in early 1955. When the show had been filmed in black and white, George Reeves' red, blue, and yellow Superman costume was actually brown, gray, and white to create the proper contrast for black and white television. The prints of the color episodes had to be treated so that there would be a similar contrast in the colors of the new costume as there were with the one from the earlier seasons, as the gray tones of the blue and red colors would otherwise have been rendered nearly indistinguishable. In, in addition to the production changes, the focus of the show also changed from the crime drama feel of the first season and science fiction feel of the second to a more family-oriented show, with little of the violence that had been present early in the season. However, a somewhat lackadaisical attitude seemed to overtake production, as flubbed lines were allowed to make their way into final edits, and there was a moratorium on shooting additional effect shots. This occasionally resulted in footage being flipped in order to show Superman flying in different directions, which caused his S emblem to be reversed in some cuts. Morale apparently de deteriorated among the cast and crew as a result of salary disputes. Reeves was also reportedly dissatisfied with his role going into season three. He was 40 years old and felt that the part was one-dimensional and actually made it difficult for him to branch out due to typecasting. One more, excuse me, on more than one occasion he threatened to leave the show, with Superman serial actor Kirk Allen being contacted to take over the role, which he refused. The disputes were eventually resolved, and whatever dissatisfaction Reeves had never seemed to make it into his performances. He directed the final three episodes of the show in an effort to branch out into new territory. Of course, they didn't know at that time that they would be the final episodes. Despite all of the show's problems, it remained very popular, and there were plans for two more years' worth of episodes following the sixth season that were never produced. The death of actor John Hamilton hardly slowed things down, as actor Pierre Watkin was hired to portray Perry White's brother. However, the tragic death of George Reeves in June of 1959 ultimately finished the show. Despite his passing, the producers, in a showing of extreme tastelessness, approached Jack Larson and suggested that the series could continue as Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, with Larson continuing his character and playing opposite a Superman who would be a compilation of old shots of George Reeves and a look-alike stunt double filmed from behind. Larson immediately rejected this, taste this distasteful plan, and the series was finished. Our first episode of Season 3 is Through the Time Barrier, which is episode number one and aired on April 23, 1955. The mysterious gangster, Turk Jackson, has decided to turn himself in, not directly to the police, but to Clark Kent, a fine, upstanding citizen who might act as a buffer between the crew, crude gunmen and the cops. After Turk signs a confession in Perry White's office, 
Ian Clark, accompanied by Perry, Jimmy Olsen, and Lois Lane, file into an elevator. Intruding on this group is a nutty professor having invented a time machine. No sooner do the others scoff, a small explosion from Professor Twiddle's little box sends them all back to prehistoric times. Turk decides he likes living in an era with no cops, and so he steals the time machine and hides it. Clark is eager to take action as Superman, but how can he explain Superman's presence in 50,000 B.C.? Meanwhile, Perry suffers the attention of an over-affectionate cavewoman as he, Lois, and Jimmy get used to their new cave duds. And to me, the biggest point in this one is that the nutty professor is played by Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> I've, I've, yeah. got, I've got that he's, he is also the white rabbit and my daughter Anne knew watched this one with me and she just kept calling him the white rabbit I actually find Sterling Holloway good value I think he's, he's really fun whenever oh, he shows up in the he's, series he's great Sterling yeah. Holloway is just great he's safe I mean this it, well, this was the one that I saw in the summer of 1988, and uh, this was why I didn't give the series a first shake. It's not that it's not fun. It has its moments. Turk's funny. Some of the dialogue's very funny. Some of it's a real groaner. Uh, Lois looks pretty damn good as a cave girl, and he's yes, showing an awful lot more leg than you think 50s television would approve uh, of. There's even an, uh, pretty much an upskirt shot Yes, at one my point, wife pointed you... that out. My wife said that was a bit uh, during for the 50s. Yes, it was. Um, the colours not as in your face as later 60s shows would be. Um, I, I was left with one big question at the end of this one that was lightweight but fun. What will future archaeologists think of a lighter and a bunch of 50s clothes <laughs> being found when they're doing a dig of that area? I thought of that too. What are they gonna? What are the archaeologists gonna say? It's gonna be Planet of the Apes all over again. <laughs> find it in the Forbidden Zone. In the Forbidden yeah. Zone, they find a lighter and some fifties duds. Yeah. yeah. You did it. You really did it. <laughs> damn you! Damn you all to hell. I. uh... Okay, uh, we, we talked that sometimes when you're reviewing something, you have to kind of, or watching it for fun, you have to put yourself in a, in a different mindset. Uh, having said this, I had to put myself in a really different mindset for this one, because this is the type of Superman story that I find charming, but it's not my bread and butter. Right. Uh, you know, you know, professor, you know, the, the professor was a little Herbert the pervert right there at the beginning of the episode <laughs> when he was talking to Jimmy, he made me very uncomfortable as he's just kind of glaring at him. I'm like, what's going on here? Uh, at the same time, it's hard to deny that it's fun. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, Perry being pursued by the cave woman named Lana. Who's redhead uh, named Lana. Who's. Yeah, which uh, which Andy pointed out to me on Facebook, you know, before you know, before we recorded this, you know, that's kind of funny and kind of feeds into what we were talking about with Jimmy and Clark and the breakfast cereals of uh, why he's not really all that interested. Because frankly, you know, a good-looking younger woman going after an older man is usually, you know, thumbs up. Let's go for it. Uh, it's just. I like the fact that the only reason the guy wants to go back to the present is so he could sell, you know, he could basically make some money off of it. You know, it's just goofy, but not the worst thing that has ever happened in life. It's it's my least favorite episode on the list that we have been covering. I, I think you can tell the distinct change in approach, though. Uh, the first two seasons, clearly, you know, 
they have that feel of a 1950s uh, television series, whereas this has more of the feeling of one of those live-action Saturday morning shows that they'd intersperse with the cartoons. Right. Yeah. You know, Land of the Lost or something along yes. those lines. Yes. Uh, Superman as a whole, in, in, in fact, in all, uh, uh, all of the seasons, there were three basic types of scientists – you had, uh, you had like Sterling Holloway here, you had your goofy professor that every time he showed up, the world was going to turn upside down or you're going to get sent, something weird is going to happen. Uh, uh, then you had, of course, the, the, the evil scientist who was going to either invent crypt, synthetic kryptonite or come up with a room full of static electricity that would kill him or freeze him. And the third type, of scientists is when Superman really needed help. So he would go to the scientist who would tell him about the asteroid and panic in the sky or how to meld through a cube or how to divide himself into two people. <laughs> uh, so uh, those three types of scientists came back throughout the entire series. And the actors would swap. Uh, now, Sterling Holloway never played one of the really bad scientists or the scientists that got Superman out of trouble or helped him with anything. He was usually the goofy, wacky inventor or had a parakeet that talked or he was the goofy type of professor. Um, but several professors would go from inventing kryptonite in one episode to then in another episode giving him uh, a way to use his superpowers to get out of trouble or beat the guy. Uh, again, what we talked about earlier of using the same actors to play multiple parts. And uh, not until I was a, you know, much later in my years rewatching these did it really occur to me, other than Sterling Holloway, who was, you know, uh, it, it, it's hard to mistake him. He is a very, even though he's played many characters, uh, even in old black and white MGM type movies where he'd be a soda jerk in a Edgar Bergen, Charlie McCarthy movie and talking to Charlie McCarthy or, I mean, Sterling Holloway had been around for a long time. So he is very obvious and very distinct character. So he probably could not have played a good guy this week and a bad guy next week. Um, but uh, several of the scientists did play one of the three types quite regularly. But I love Sterling Holloway. Okay, on to Great Caesar's Ghost, Season 3, Episode 5, uh, aired on May 21st, 1955. Everybody knows that the favorite expression of Daily Planet reporter Perry White is Great Caesar's Ghost. With this in mind, imagine White's shock and dismay when he is confronted with the ghost of Julius Caesar. Before long, all of Metropolis is seriously questioning White's sanity, which is precisely the intention of the gang of crooks who hope to discredit Perry's testimony at a criminal trial. Looks like Superman is going to have to do some ghost hunting in this one. I like this one. This, this, this is another one that I remember fondly as a kid. Uh, I like the whole plot. I like how Superman turns the tables on them by playing, uh, the, uh, what's his name? Uh, Marlo, uh, the person who they killed, who they're on trial for killing him. I like how they have the little, uh, call back to uh, Christmas Carol when Perry says, Marlo was dead, dead as a doornail. <laughs> uh, 
and and I, I, I just uh, one of the things that just is kind of silly though is the one who seems to figure out the whole plot first is Jimmy, uh, and you know Inspector Henderson is sitting there scratching his head while Jimmy's figuring it out, explaining to him what's going on, which <laughs> just doesn't uh, seem quite right to me. Yeah. Um, I, can I just read what I wrote for this one? Absolutely. Uh, Perry calls Clark to yell at him and give him plot exposition. He then complains ticking when he sat in front of a clock. Then he orders top planet reporter Clark Kent to move a heater for him. And after witnessing this super feat, this causes Perry to take the planet plane for personal use. Perry then tries to commit suicide. <laughs> after hearing voices, Perry believes he's seeing Great Caesar's ghost, which may explain why he says that at least six times in this episode. John Hamilton delivers a pretty decent performance as Perry teeters on the edge, whilst even Butler Jarvis, on loan from Avengers Mansion, presumably can't help. <laughs> Adding fuel to the fire the planet o- that the planet only has three employees, Clark is promoted to editor and makes the kind of deductive logic leap normally reserved for Adam West as Batman, and they decide to help Perry because it's all a con. Of course it is. Caesar's ghost is a man in white makeup and clothes stolen from the MGM wardrobe. Jarvis is a scroll, and Superman pretends to be a ghost. It is every bit as ridiculous as it sounds, and yet, despite itself, incredibly charming to watch. Reeves has a lot of fun playing the editor's ghost, but Henderson's last line, this is what got me about this one, Henderson's last line is, they'll be in jail for the rest of their lives, which won't be long. And I just thought, Really? You're going to arrange to have them killed? <laughs> no, probably um, that they're going to be sent to the electric chair. Yeah, this is hard in Metropolis. Yeah, after a, a lightweight installment like this one with people dressing up as Caesar, it ends with the note that Henderson's going to have these guys killed in the electric chair. <laughs> 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 and I thought, way to turn on a dime and end this episode on a dark note. <laughs> should have ended it with the actual executions. Yeah. <laughs> and Superman and Anderson laughing about it. <laughs> that would have been brilliant. I, I like the way Perry, like, accepts the situation. Mr. Caesar is a guest in my home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Perry's just, he, he's just really comfortable in his insanity. Yes. It was it was a good one. It's completely out of place compared to the earlier ones. But I think now we've got into the third season, you're having to accept those days are gone. It is a completely yeah. different show. It's exactly like Paul says. It feels like it feels like the Disney Channel early morning version of Superman rather than what we were getting earlier on. I I, I kind of I agree with pretty much everything Andy said, though. To be fair, I, I do still find it to be a very charming episode, mainly because the guy playing Caesar looks like he's having a lot of fun playing Caesar. Yes. I yeah, mean, I, he's I think really... that's what saves it. Sorry, Matt. I think that's what saves this one. The actors all seem like they're having a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, I, I, there were times, though, that at the end I thought Superman was going to turn into, like, you know, Super Flasher uh, <laughs> by wearing that coat and everything. This was one of the ones, though, that they aired on one of those Thanksgiving marathons. So I remember Jack Larson, in, you know, in his introduction talking about how, uh, how, how much fun basically they had making this one because it's, uh, as goofy as it is, it's a rather clever premise. You had a guy sitting around a writer's room, which was basically Mort Weisinger and Whitney Ellsworth spoon-feeding whoever's writing the script that week. But basically they said, you know, he says Great Caesar's Ghost a lot. 
I wonder if somebody would use that to his uh to their advantage, and off they go. Uh, again, if this was like a first season episode, it would have been much darker, but, you know, we're in the color era where everything's kind of bright and shiny and happy, so the ending outside of, you know, Henderson basically saying they're going to be electrocuted, uh, it's like, you know, you almost want that Star Trek music to come in at the end when everything's like kind of a da-da-da-da-da-da-da. There'll be no trouble at all. Well, like, remember the TV show, The Police Squad? When they, yes. when they yeah, would, the when they would, yes. yeah, when they would freeze frame at the end and play the music. Yes. But still pouring coffee, so it's spilling all over the floor. Yeah, headed for the electric chair, and then he slaps clock on the back, and they freeze frame. Well, while I pretty much agree with both Michael and Andy on this one, um, I would still include this one in, in my top 15. I'm not sure it would make the top 10, but... Uh, it would be in the top 15, uh, and for pretty much the same reasons. It looks like they're having a blast uh, doing this episode. There's even a smirk on on George Reeves' face there at the end when he's in the the uh, derby and overcoat. And, uh, of course, he's got that little Elvis smirk a lot anyway. I think he and Elvis went to the same acting school. Uh, George Reeves and Elvis have that lip curly thing going on that's but. part of george reeves appeal to me and part of this series appeal is you always felt like he was winking at you and it was like you and he were the only ones in on the joke yes yes and as a little kid when you're watching that you knew he was talking directly to you he was looking at you he was letting you in on it with him and uh, i think that was both the genius of george reeves and the way they actually shot this and directed it to to keep us all in, even when it gets into these um, sillier type episodes. Um, but even though this was, and, and going back again to being the old guy in the group, even though this was, uh, now we're into the third season when they're starting to be in color, uh, we weren't watching these in color. We were still watching these in black and white. Uh, in fact, and I'll go ahead and use this little story now, um, I never saw any of these episodes in color until the 70s, um, till long after the, the show was off the air and had gone through syndication, and then it had been off the air here in Richmond for almost a decade um, before sometime in the 70s they brought them back, one of the local stations. By that point, I had my own or television. I had a house. I had my little Tony Trinitron. And this will also show you stuff. I had not done a whole lot of reading or looking into this. So when I saw the color episodes for the first time in color, and Noel Neal came on with bright red slash orange hair, uh, I was stunned. In fact, I don't even know if we got time for that. We can cut it out later. I, I met Noel Neal. In the early 70s, she was, uh, the show was just starting to come back on, and she came to do uh, um, some sort of a little, I don't think it was a, a Superman-specific thing. It was more of a, uh, a TV-slash-comic book uh, convention here, and uh, we're sitting in our seats, and when she walked out, again, I had not seen any of the episodes in color. I hadn't seen any pictures of the color episodes. I'd only seen them in black and white. So the guy introduces Noel Neal, and she walks out. 
and she's got this bright red hair. And my first thought is, well, now that the show's over, I guess she's dyeing her hair or something. I didn't know that during the show she actually wore it as red hair. Uh, I don't collect autographs. I have three. Uh, one of them is of Noel Neal from the early 70s when I went up after the show and talked to her. Um, and got her to sign a little piece of paper. I, paper. I was kind of starstruck a little bit. I mean, a very petite little lady in uh, in the early '70s, that bright orange hair. And I walk up, and I could, I, I, you know, it was like uh, total starstruck. Uh, hi, I'm. And she signed it. Hi, Bobby from uh, Noel Lois Lane Neal. And uh, so it it shocked me that she had red hair because we didn't see these episodes. So even though they were being shot in color, I don't think they were actually being shown in color until later. Uh, uh, quite, a, quite a shock. Um, but about Great Caesars Ghost in, in particular, again, why I liked it so much was the fact that, that it looked like they were having fun and the fact that Julius Caesar... Um, it just seemed like a great idea to me because it was great Caesar's ghost and here was Caesar and Perry just accepted it over all of his friends, over everybody in his life telling him, no, that's wrong, it can't be real, blah, blah, blah. He's saying, how dare you, Mr. Caesar is a guest in my house. It, it was hysterical. So again, it probably not in my top 10, but definitely top 15 and is one that I do remember fondly, um, but never knowing it was in color until much later. Our next episode is Clark Kent Outlaw, Season 3, Episode 8, aired on September 10, 1955. Fired by Editor Perry White, disgraced reporter Clark Kent joins a gang of diamond thieves. Unbeknownst to fellow reporters Lois and Jimmy, Clark's criminal career is but a sham, a scheme cooked up between Kent and White to trap the real crooks and turn them over to the law. Even so, Clark is forced to prove his loyalty to the gang by eliminating Lois and Jimmy, binding the hapless duo to a chair, which is then set afire. Isn't it about time for Clark to sneak into that closet and change into Superman? <laughs> this, I, that's the scene that always stuck in my memory, was the uh, putting them in the chair, lighting it on fire, and then his explanation afterwards that he bought the chair for, chair, for Perry, uh, because he would fall asleep smoking, <laughs> and he didn't want it to go on fire. What did you think? What did you guys think of this one? Um, I, I think thought... Jimmy and Lois. Oh, go ahead. No, no, go on. You can first. I, went I think Lim... I think Jimmy and Lois should uh, never speak to Clark again after this one. <laughs> uh, e even though he knew they were going to die, he still tied them to a chair and lit stuff on fire <laughs> and left them trapped or, there. Or, or he comes back to save them afterwards, and they both had heart attacks and are dead. <laughs> uh, well, I, yeah, I was going to say exactly the same thing, Mike. Clark and Perry's gleeful little smile at the beginning <laughs> where they make Lois cry because they're <laughs> at its finest. And Jimmy and Lois can't leave well enough alone, so they scotch Clark's undercover plans. But I thought this was hugely enjoyable. I thought this one was a throwback to the glory days of season one. There's a wonderful bit where Superman's offered the cup of tea at the mining company, and he's like, oh, I'm a bit busy. I thought that was lovely. Um, the villains don't seem as stupid as usual, even if they're not very good at tying people up. And Clark's a real pyromaniac. He really seems to enjoy setting fire to Perry's office. 
which <laughs> just George Reeves is just brilliant in this one. I mean, Perry blows the whole gas. It's an undercover scam, and Superman saves the day. I love this one. That was a really fun episode. Agreed. That was a really fun episode, too. Uh, and I, I, I'm thinking the same thing that you guys are. Why would Jimmy and Lois ever speak to Clark again after such a, a, a cruel trick? And where did that knife come from? That was back in the days, I guess, maybe you guys still do. I asked a few friends of mine the other night as we were together, do you carry a knife with you still at all times now? Uh, was, I, I carry a knife with me at no times now. Uh, at no times. I used to have my Cub Scout one with me all the time. You know, the one that has can openers and, and what's it on it. Yeah, and then, exactly. And then stupid people just ruined my phone and went around stabbing people and killing them. And then we got told that it was illegal to carry knives around because, yeah, I'm going to stab somebody with my Boy Scout knife. I yeah, incredible. It ruined my life. Well, because I did when I, until I was probably 15 or 16, I carried my Boy Scout knife. Yeah, and, uh, but after that, I you know I uh, uh, I actually lost. We used to play a game called stretch, where you two guys stand opposite facing each other, and you throw your knife down next to their foot and stick it in the ground. If it's stuck in the ground, they had to move their foot to it. Probably not explaining this correctly, but the idea is to stick your knife in the ground and make your opponent stretch his legs so far apart that he eventually falls down. Um, and not get it in his foot. Exactly, <laughs> exactly, and not actually throw the knife and stab your uh, buddy's foot. Uh, but uh, I broke mine doing that, so uh, stopped carrying mine at about 15 or so. But uh, the other night I had a bunch of friends over, and I asked them that very same question based on this episode. I remembered all of a sudden there's Clark pulling a knife out of his pocket to cut Perry's... Uh, uh, chair apart, and I asked those guys, there were six of us sitting around at the table, I said, any of you guys still carry a knife? One out of the six still carries his pocket knife with him. That number would go up where around the area I live, uh, a lot of people still around carry. here. Yeah. Mostly rednecks, but still. Yeah. Well, you live in the south, Michael. I'm up in the north of the south, but I am in Richmond, Virginia, the home of the south, the capital of the south if you would. I, don't know, I, I hear about that game that you used to play, and I think, and people complain that now the kids play video games, that it makes them too violent. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> you know, I know. You played a game where you throw knives at each other for entertainment. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it was nothing, and we did that from the time we were about six, seven, well, Cub Scouts, which you're about eight, I guess, when you joined Cub Scouts or so. And uh, from about that time on, we always had little pocket knives of uh, my God, by the time I was 10, I had a BB gun, I had a 22 rifle, and uh, a knife. You live in the South, you have those things. The <laughs> <laughs> next episode is The Seven Souvenirs, Season 3, Speaking Episode knives. Yes, very good segue. It aired on October 8, 1955. A curio dealer named Mr. Willie is enjoying a brisk business selling dozens of souvenir daggers that he claims have been bent out of shape by the Man of Steel, Superman. Uh, of course, Superman's alter ego, Clark Kent, knows that the daggers are phony. Why, then, is someone willing to steal every one of the daggers that have been sold in Metropolis? Well, it seems that a con man named Jasper is hoping to dupe Superman into using his X-ray vision to transform two of the worthless daggers into a valu valuable radium. 
this is a good example of an episode being re- uh, a plot to an episode being repurposed. Because uh, this really reminded me of the first season episode where the people are going into like the ceramic shops and breaking stuff apart to get at something. Yeah. Yeah. Where here you you have a similar similar idea, but to a more science fiction end. Uh, not not a bad episode, but not one that I would put on a best of list. I mean, it's it's a good example for what we're covering. It just right. wasn't it just wasn't one of my favorite ones. Like like in the uh, in in. Uh, Superman in Exile, we once again learned that if something's radioactive, it glows in the dark. It glows in the dark. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Broken Statues was the name of the uh, uh, the other show you're thinking about there, Michael, in the first season, uh, where Lois gets onto a story and Clark happens to be working on the same story. Uh, that was a, uh, one of my favorite episodes. This reminded me of that but not on that level, and like you say, a totally different ending and a totally different feeling about this one. Um, um, and once again, the curator of the, uh, 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 of the little souvenir shop also plays a scientist in later episodes and other episodes. So uh, once again, these recurring actors, they come back for different parts regularly. Um, well, a little bit of a clever thing, the guy having to say, you know, and how do I get these um, to be valuable for my experiments was to get Superman to x-ray them with his x-ray vision. How do we do that, trick him into this elaborate scheme that came right out of a Silver Age comic book? This is, this is exactly the kind of story that one of the three stories in the 32-page 10 and 12 cent stories of the Silver Age, you would get one of the three stories in that comic would be something just like this. This is very typical of, um, of a Silver Age comic book story. Uh, yeah, I, I've got nothing really to add to that one. I thought this was a very interesting central idea. I like the idea right. of somebody just goes around to places where Superman is bent stuff and sells them as souvenirs. It seems perfectly plausible. I thought yeah. this one was enlivened immeasurably by George. I thought George Reeves' performance was wonderfully charming in this one. He never seemed to phone it in, even if he wasn't as dissatisfied with it as, as legend has led us to believe. Mm-hmm. You couldn't tell it from what's on screen. Um, Jimmy's as dense as ever. <laughs> and more and more as the series went on, he just became a bloody liability. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and yet he really, was considered to be the most popular thing. That's why they wanted to continue with him. Well, there's, the, there's that interesting quote, isn't there, that Jack Larson said he liked the series that went on because Jimmy was given more comedy. And Philip right. Coates has apparently retorted with, I didn't know Superman was a comedy. Mm. So I, I quite like that. I'm, I'm missing Ballsy Lois as well. But did you notice, well, in this one, there's a number of scenes that fade to other scenes with the characters still talking? implying that this one ran considerably over time. And there's a couple of, of interesting things as well. Henderson doesn't have a warrant to search Jasper's, which nobody ever seems to mention. That Inspector Henderson needs a warrant to do anything. He just seems to blunder in and do what he wants. And never Jasper's has warrants. No, he never, never does. And Jasper's understanding of how X-rays work seems to be a little nebulous. But it, it, was, it was all right. It was enjoyable. There was nothing wrong with it. Well, I always think it's funny talking about uh, Inspector Henderson and his warrants. There are many times during this se- series where uh, there's a crime happening, something happenings, 
and uh, 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 Inspector Henderson will say, well, Clark, I'll ride with you. And uh, they'd show up at a crime scene, and here's Inspector Henderson in Clark's little two-seat convertible given to him by his real-life girlfriend, mobster girl. So very interesting, but yeah. No warrants. There are many times. Uh, one of I watched last night an episode I watched with the Jade. What was it called? The Chinese Jade, I think it was called, where Inspector Henderson tries to get in a door and it's locked. And Clark says, "Oh, well, here, let me try." Wham! <laughs> Doors open. We're in. No warrant needed. Let's search. Let's search the place. Anything to add, Mike? No, I pretty much said all I wanted to. Okay. <laughs> uh, our next episode is The Big Freeze, Season 4, Episode 3, March 3rd, 1956. Dishonest politician Duke Taylor and his henchman Little Jack conspire with crooked, crooked Dr. Watts to rid Metropolis of Superman just before an important election. Luring the Man of Steel into a locked room, the trio turns the temperature down to 2,000 degrees below zero. Thus frozen, Superman not only loses his super strength, but also the color in his face and must put on makeup when disguised as Clark Kent, thereby making an embarrassing situation even more so. As it turns out, Superman's only hope to return to normal is to expose himself to extreme heat. A uh, couple of points on this one. First of all, the henchman is played by Richard Reeves. I tried to look it up and see if perhaps he was George Reeves' brother, but I couldn't find anything on that. Uh, but I thought that was interesting. And, Bob, you talked earlier of the different types of scientists. This one happens to be my favorite one, even though it's purely comic relief, the way he speaks in the episode and just constantly, like, repeats himself and, and says it forward and backward. Uh, mm. Basically, he could have been Professor Redundant. Uh, or Yoda. Yeah, or Yoda. But I, I just got a kick out of him and the way he spoke and, and his attitude. You know, I'm not leaving without my money. My money I won't leave without. You know, that's kind of thing. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, this one is definitely in my top ten. This one this one might even be in my top five. Um, and, and there's just so much about this one. I could just talk on forever about this. I want that costume. I want to know what happened to that costume. I want to know, did they make an entirely new costume white for this one? Did they dye or bleach in a, a color one? Is it just... Ugh, so many questions I want to know behind the scenes on this one, but as an episode... Maybe it's one of the old gray and brown ones. Uh, good point. That many more. Yeah, it just looks so much, and even here in high def, when you're looking at it on a big 40-inch screen, and, and I got real close to the screen to look at this one, um, it's the same cape, it's the same material, it's the, it fits in the same, you know, it's, the only thing missing is the sweat stain on the stomach. <laughs> but, but other than that, it, and whatever happened to this white costume? Is it still there? Does somebody own this thing somewhere? Is it destroyed after the episode? Only used once in this show? Um, but literally, this really is one of my, uh, one of my top five favorites of all time. Um, and it's not that big a deal of an episode. I mean, it's really a pretty, you know, bland episode as far as the plot goes. Uh, criminals are trying to rig an election. And, uh, they take away his powers. Um, but the look when he came out of that frozen 
thing the first time. Again, George Reeves is amazing in these episodes. And people can say, and I, I keep reading it all the time, where he was dissatisfied, wanted to not wear the costume, wanted to do something, wanted to do other. Well, you can't tell me that based on his, um, what's on the screen. His, his um, performances don't say that at all. His performances say he's in the moment, he's there, he's giving it his best. And when he walked out, both times, when he comes out frozen, you can see it in his body, in his language, the way he walks, in his face. And at the end, when he comes out of the furnace, he's stretching, he's full of power again. I felt like, my God, I've got superpowers again. Look at this. He's back. Yes. Um, it's George Reeves, once again, just selling the hell out of this episode. For me, the, the, this is a... This is a twofer, really. It's a PSA and it's a gimmick episode all rolled into one. Uh, I love the big freeze element. I mean, it's a good gimmick. Don't, don't see that as an insult, but it's like one of those things of, well, we're going to freeze Superman this time and, and see where that goes. But the, the thing I got from this episode was vote. Vote. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> oh, very clear. Are you voting yet? Even, even, by the way, have read we... their parts of their, uh, columns where they talk about the power of the voting. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a good message. Don't get me wrong. And I do like that, you know, Clark on several occasions is like, you know, you know, in all honesty, Superman can only do so much. Right. It's, it's really up to you guys to fix this. So, uh, would you get to the voting already? Yeah. Cause, and, and the guy at the end, it's just, he goes, who are you going to vote for? I still haven't decided yet, Superman. So, which was a polite way of saying, that's a really rude question to ask. <laughs> well, it's like can- a woman's eight. Still my decision. It's it's like a it's like a, a woman's age. Uh you, you don't ask who you're voting for. It just especially these days. But Facebook has kind of ruined that. So Facebook maybe, has uh, ruined that. It's hard to even keep friends nowadays on Facebook. Facebook ruins everything. <laughs> Fun episode though. <laughs> That'll be the takeaway from the episode. Um, I, I just agree with pretty much everything you all said. I thought there's some excellent ideas in this one. They could have been exploited a bit more. Uh, Lois's urge to do nothing because Superman won't let anything happen is, I thought this was a good pick from Paul because it does typify how the show has changed from the first season where Superman was just this, this force for good who came in, did something and left and now they're just relying on him to do everything. And it's got to the point now where the only thing that stops Robert Shane from being as terrible at his job as Neil Hamilton's Commissioner Gordon is Robert Shane's excellent performance. You don't get the feeling he sits on his laurels. Uh, yes, the get out and vote message was favoured, but again, like you say, it's not a bad message, it's just, it, they kind of did hit you over the head with it a little bit, didn't they? Go and vote. A lot, yeah. Uh, but the dialogue in this one's brilliant, the dialogue in this one crackles, like Paul said, the scientist speech patterns are hysterical, where they could have been really irritating. There's a wonderful line from Perry, when Clark has to don Lewis's pancake makeup to hide the fact that he's frozen. Perry comes out and said, what are you meaning, my Kent, Miami? With <laughs> <laughs> a hysterical line. Um, and I refuse to believe that at this point, Jimmy Olsen's not old enough to vote. Yeah, he's got to be about 25, 26 years old when they film this. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, okay. I mean, if you accept that the show's been on the earth four years at this point, and he's still not old enough to vote, how old was he when the show started? 
because we've never old enough to go on vacation by himself. Yeah, yeah, old enough to go on vacation with an older man. Yeah, and not have his parents object. <laughs> of course, it was a different era. Help, um, I'm drowning. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that brings me to my to to, to Mike Mike Bailey's usual line: "Show us on the doll where Perry touched you." <laughs> <laughs> Um, I've got a couple of questions. Have they never talked about colorizing the first two seasons? I've never heard any talk of it, which is surprising no. considering, you know, how how you know how widespread colorization became in the eighties. Yeah. Mm, that's what I was thinking. Like when TNT was it TNT that advertised in the comics, they made a big deal about the fact they were bringing the show back. I did wonder if, if Ted Turner had ever mooted the idea of coloring these early shows. But, I, all right. I think there may have been some rights issues with this show, because I think that's why it took so long for it actually to come out on DVD. I right. think there was some, some legal issues, so they may not have been able to get control of them to colorize them. Right. All right, that makes sense. Um, we're into the final three. I just want to point out, again, Paul's just going to end up with a slap back by the end of this episode. Uh, as I mentioned at the top of the show, the final two seasons of this series has never been released commercially over here, so I've never seen the final three episodes until Paul very generously sent me them, which enabled me to, to take part in the final part of the show and not go, right, I'm off now. So <laughs> uh, you're very welcome. I'm, I, like I said, I'm jealous of you and Mike that there's episodes that you haven't seen because I would love to be able to sit down and watch some episodes right now that I've never seen before. Yeah, me too. Well, that would be exciting. Well, they were they were good good episodes as well. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm just glad we didn't choose any from season five. For some reason, uh, I popped the disc in this week. I was trying to just watch as many as I could this week, and I popped the disc in for season five. Uh, and the disc two, episodes seven through twelve, for some reason will not play on my PS3. That disc is not working. So season five, episodes seven through 12, I can't see. So glad we didn't. You're going to have to remedy that. Yeah, I'm going to have to fix that somehow. We have three uh, interesting ones coming up from season six. Yeah, I think these are all quality ones personally, and we'll talk about them in more detail. First of those three is The Mysterious Cube, season six, episode four. It aired on February 24, 1958. Inspector Henderson believes that Paul Barton, a criminal who is guilty of practically every crime known who disappeared nearly seven years ago, is hiding inside a cube-like structure which is made of some material that is impenetrable. He goes to the planet to air his concern. It seems that by law, if a person's missing for seven years, which will be in 24 hours, he is declared legally dead, and a dead man can't be arrested. So Clark turns into Superman and tries to get into the cube, but even he can't get in. So he goes to a scientist for help. Barton's brother, who has been keeping an eye on things for Barton, is worried that Superman might find his way in, so he grabs Lois and Jimmy. The scientist postulates that Superman might be able to alter his molecules and pass through anything solid, but he is worried that since the material of the cube is made of not known, or of unknown material, excuse me, he might not be able to get out. When Superman tries to get through, he learns of Lois and Jimmy, so he gets out before... It's cut off on me, I'm sorry. Before going all the way through. Actually, for whatever reason, that description was cut off. Eventually, he saves the day by tricking the criminal within the cube 
and having the military time change so that he gets out of the cube, I believe, 10 minutes earlier than he should have while he is still legally alive and he's arrested. We discussed this one kind of at length on uh, Comics Monthly Monday. Yeah. Uh, which, uh, that, uh, you're the one that aired last month, right? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I thought that was kind of, I was thinking about that, actually, uh, because I was just like, we, uh, but, you know, there are people who probably haven't heard that. And... I haven't heard well, that, I didn't know you did that. It was listening to that that made me get in touch with you and say, let's do this, because Paul said, we keep saying we're going to do this, and now we've talked about it, let's do it. And I'm happy that we finally are, I'm really enjoying this. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, two minds on this one, I enjoyed it. It's a very fun episode. I do love when Superman learns he's got new superpowers. Of course he can walk through. <laughs> Why not? He was Kitty Pride long before there was a Kitty Pride. Reeves is engaging. There was a couple of things that didn't quite hold up. Surely if the police suspect that the crook is in the cube, they can get an injunction that prevents him from being declared dead. Or is that not how it works? I, I, except for this episode, I've never heard anything where you're legally declared dead at seven years, no matter what. It's but I've always accepted it. Well, to be fair, he has to go. The, the guy's brother has to go to the courthouse. Yeah, it isn't to get him dead. declared. Yeah, a member of your family has to declare you dead. Because over here we have a famous rock star, Richie Edwards, who's in the Manic Street Preachers, and he just disappeared. And for the entire time, the, the other four members of the band, the other three members of the band, were still paying his share of the money into his bank account because he was never declared dead. And after seven years, his family did declare him dead, even though there's no body. You would, you would think that there were reasons for that for estate purposes and things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I get that. That all makes perfect sense to me. But if the police suspect that he's in there... This isn't a case of the brothers going in and saying, he's dead, I'm declaring him dead, there's no sign of him. The police suspect he's in the cube. Surely yeah, I mean, I mean the, moment, the moment the gangster says, I'm going to tell you right now, he's in there, Superman would have been like, right. Yeah. Thank you. So that bit didn't hold up. And then, and in what world does it make sense that instead of going to prison for a couple of years, you lock yourself in solitary confinement for seven years? Well, it's, it's I, I believe it's, uh, he was locking himself in solitary confinement for seven years because the alternative was the death sentence. Is that so what one, yeah. Once again, a happy ending. <laughs> Which we're, we're all for in Superman TV shows. Right, okay, so if he's going to get the death sentence, that will make sense. All right, I'm down with that one. The biggest... And they uh, make... And they make such a huge deal over this new power that in the middle of using, he's just like, right, got to stop. Okay, I got to get out of here. <laughs> the, the, the biggest like inconsistency to me is they took tried all these methods of uh, getting in, uh, and nobody ever thought of acid. You know, I mean, just seems to me like, uh, you know, they've, they've had seven years to try and get in. They didn't just wait for the list. We tried a bulldozer. We tried explosives. Have you tried acid? Lunch! <laughs> 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 well, I want to know that what Bill's day for the last seven years. That was Bill's day. Bill, did you try the acid? Uh, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, I, I yeah. It didn't work at all. Uh, it didn't work. <laughs> Cut to Bill getting like extremely high on bath salts that day, not trying to, <laughs> having to cover up for himself. The thing I took away from this one the most is, my God, Lois's hair was red. Yeah, it got redder and redder as the series went on. Yeah, this whole episode was for the power of the melding through the cube. It uh, that was pretty much it. 
Um, uh, but still, an enjoyable show. It's it's it. You know, I still enjoy watching this, and and um, uh, many times when I'm just going to put the disc in, when you look at the episodes on the side, you go, "Oh yeah, I want to watch that one. I want to watch that one." So it 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 is recurring. It does pop itself up a lot, and and it's mainly because of the uh, um, of the new superpower being able to. Um, I don't know what you would call that. Vanish, uh, spread your molecules so that you can do a flash thing. Now, was he vibrating like flash, or see that kind of got me? As a, is this different than the way flash goes through solid material? I saw it as very similar in that respect. That's what I figured. Yeah. Kind of vibrating his molecules so that he can um, pass through the solid objects, kind of like flash, I guess. Um, but uh, all in all, it, you know, it, it was one of those things where I thought the same thing. I thought, well, the cops know he's in there, and if the alternative was death penalty, I thought there was no statute of limitations on murder, which still I think is the only thing you can get the death penalty for. I don't think they give death penalty for other things except attempting to shoot. Like, Well, it's not a matter of statute of limitations. It's a matter of if he's legally dead, you can't prosecute him. That was the premise that they were giving but but if he comes out and says you know i'm who you are and they prove that he's alive can't you get that overturned or i would think i i mean you know i i think the biggest glaring thing about this episode to me is apparently the president trusts superman so much that he's willing to change the way time is recorded over the entire military yeah and and i mean you realize accurate i think they should trust Superman that much. Right. But that changed yeah, but everybody's was, time. Not just... I mean, that is the... Yeah. That everybody's time oh, would they have been changed. already. <laughs> but only by ten minutes, so... No, by an hour. Oh, I see. Yeah, Talking about yeah. daylight savings time. Right. They do it to me every year, twice a year, and it's annoying once, and it's very well accepted the other time. Uh, which one do you like? I like when I get the extra hour in the morning. I hate when I lose an hour. Interesting. See, I like having the hour in the in the later times. I like having, you know, for me, if you're a night person in the winter, uh, you don't have a lot of light to start with. So getting dark at five, I've already lost half my day. So I like the daylight savings time, staying light until eight or nine o'clock at night. I like that. And I guess we're ready now for uh, our next episode. Uh, just worthy of mentioning is the final three episodes of the series, as I mentioned in the preamble to the color episodes, were directed by George Reeves. The first of those was episode 11 of season six, The Brainy Burrow, uh, and we're not reviewing that one because it's kind of a forgettable episode. Thank you. Uh, but we're moving on to the second one that he directed, The Perils of Superman, season six, episode 12, which aired on April 21st, 1958. A criminal who is sent to prison by Superman and the planet staff goes to the planet office and tells them of his intention to go after them. They respond that Superman will stop him. Only problem is that he wears a lead mask to conceal his identity, and he has other men wearing the same mask. Eventually, he captures all of the planet staff and puts them in a perilous situation, and Superman has minutes to save each of them. Uh, 
biggest problem from a logistics sense on this one is just like in the last one, I think they're playing a little fast and loose with the legalities of it all, that, you know, you can't arrest them, they haven't committed a crime. Well, I think conspiracy to con commit a crime and menacing are good enough to, to pick up every guy who's walking around with that mask on and put him in a jail cell. But short of that, I love this episode. It, it's fun, basically, because it has that movie serial vibe to it. He's got to save Perry from a giant saw. Lois is literally tied to train tracks. And uh, Jimmy... Jimmy's brakes go out in his car, and then the, I mean, it, it almost turns into like a Zucker Brothers movie when Jimmy's in the car, where the brakes go out, and then the steering wheel comes loose, and I expected like the roof to fly and, off. And isn't, isn't Superman very, very casual about saving Jimmy? Like, he saves Lois. Yeah, he's just like, do 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 Yes, I gotta go get Jimmy now. <laughs> he doesn't actually save Jimmy. Yeah, that's true. Jimmy gets saved by the branch hanging out at the top of the mountain. <laughs> Because otherwise he's dead. And you kept your eyes closed? Yeah. Wah, 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 wah. And for this, some this reason, was the... the car changed from the time Jimmy jumped out of it and it rolled down the hill and exploded. <laughs> Have two different cars. Oh, that's, I didn't catch that. That's interesting. <laughs> they did a lot of this stock was... footage. The title, The Perils of Superman, is a play on The Perils of Pauly, which was one of those old-time serials that Mike mentions where people are tied to train tracks and being dropped in vats of acid. So I thought that was quite clever. Um, I, I, whiplash. Uh, uh, <laughs> I found the guys in the mask quite creepy, to be honest with you. And it's very yeah, creepy. Cool. So many of them. Everyone walking around are in these lead masks. I mean, I would imagine that's quite heavy on your shoulders. But it was still, uh, it was still a bit creepy. I quite like that one. I did know George Reeves is looking a lot older at this point. Mm -hmm. Because we've watched a number of episodes from beginning and end and in quite a short amount of time. He is. He's getting on quite a bit by the time we get to the end of season six. He's heard about forty-two at that point. Yeah, he's forty-two or so, and um, yeah, you can actually start to see he's really starting to age. The wrinkles around the the face. His drinking too. You can see that uh, his face is a little swollen in some scenes, and eyes are a little he, closer shut. Uh, he was also on painkillers at this point from a car accident. Yeah, uh, he had which caused his weight to kind of go up a little bit, too. This was the one, though, that my wife came in when I was watching and started going, why doesn't Superman just wait for him outside, grab him, and take him away? I mean, knowing that that's him. Oh, and and barring that, why doesn't he just grab everybody wearing a, a lead mask? Because they are up to no good. Right. So, Yeah, my point well, my exactly. First, my thought was early on in the episode when the guy first in the mask, in the office, talks to them and says, I've got another bunch of guys walking around in lead masks, of which only I have the key for. Oh, well, okay. Now <laughs> in your pocket. Oh, you got the key. Here we go. Let's go. Which, at the end, is how Clark says Superman uh, got the right guy. Well, why didn't you do that in the first two seconds? Oh, we wouldn't have had a show. I got you. Mm, okay. Exactly. Bye. Go on, Mike. <laughs> No, go ahead. I was just going to say my surprise at the beginning of this one was somebody else works at the Daily Planet. <laughs> <laughs> well, in, in the episode where where Lois is kind of taken hostage and Jimmy and Jimmy is taken hostage as well, you have that very frantic secretary who is just mm -hmm. the mo just like, why are you yelling at me? Because people are going to die, you stupid bitch. I mean, <laughs> come on. <laughs> That would have been a great line to be in the episode. 
<laughs> and, 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 and in its first season, Clark Kent, so you can actually kind of see him saying it. Yes, that'd be nice. <laughs> I, I thought this one was fun. It's, it's very diverting. Like, uh, like Bob pointed out, he doesn't, get, he doesn't try and save Jimmy. It's like he's not even asked about Jimmy Olsen at this point. Jimmy has to save himself. But it was all right. It was entertaining enough. Enjoyable. But I did love I did love the quick takes uh, while Jimmy is just driving that car. And they would do the quick cuts back and forth between his foot on the pedals and the steering wheel. And then more stock footage of him on at one point on the left side of the road going quickly, on the other side of the right side of the road going uh, back and forth, back and forth. But... Uh, the car actually goes over the cliff. Had he not jumped out and been saved by the stick, all Superman did was show up and say, here, give me your hand, Jimmy. I'll help you up. Now, um, it, it, this episode also had one of the poorest special effects, which I, you know, totally give to budget, budgetary reasons. But when he steps in front of the uh, rotating blade for Perry, oh, terrible. and you just hear a big bang sound, and then all of a sudden there's no blades left, and it's a perfect circle. Yeah, the little cardboard uh, blades go f- disappearing, flying off. Boom, gone. Yeah, pretty bad. But, again, as a kid, and these were directly aimed at kids. By this point, full six season, by actually three, four years before that, they were pretty much writing all of them for um, kids, and not teenagers, but kids, children. These were little kids' shows by that point. And uh, didn't want to get scary. Superman didn't hit people that hard. Bullets... uh, Nobody was dying in the last three or four seasons. Nobody died. Um, in the first season, people were getting hurt, and you could theorize they died all over the place. But, uh, um, you know, uh, until recently, I always knew that, that George Reeves directed the last episode, All the Glitters. But until recently, I had no idea he did all three of the, the last three episodes. Um, uh, and in seeing this one again, it, it brought me back in, oh yeah, George Reeves did direct this one, The Perils of Superman. And in some cases, when he was hanging there, when they had him hanging before they dropped him in the acid, um, I thought he was being, a, uh, George Reeves was being a little nonchalant or something, there was something a little off, I thought, in that scene where he's hanging there. It wasn't the typical, um... Um, I don't know, there was something that just didn't feel right uh, about the, the that scene of him hanging there. Um, of course, the criminals have to give the exposition at that point to tell him where everybody is. Well, since you're going to die anyway, here's where everybody else is and how you can go save them. Um, and, of course, the masks, like Andy said, these masks were very creepy. And not the first time they were used. They were used in several other episodes uh, along the way. One of them, I think, second season in the black and white episode. Um, what was it called? The face and, not the face and the voice, but, well, I don't remember the episode, but it was the one where the criminal was trying to fool everybody else, other criminals, into giving him a lot of money because he could have their face and their fingerprints changed. And, uh, they used these masks to cover up the fact that it was not really a change of face and fingerprints, but... Face and the Voice is the name of the episode. Was it? That was the one where George Reeves, I thought. Well, that's that's one. And then the, the episode after that was The Man in the Lead Mask. 
Ah, man in the lead mask is the one I think I'm thinking of. Man, oh. Maybe they use these masks for three or four episodes. Wow. We've covered a lot of Superman episodes in a little <laughs> period of time here, haven't we? An another point of note on this one, and uh, I guess it would predate Mike and Andy, but you might remember this, Bob. Uh, I remember in the early 70s when the show was in syndication and they would have commercials for the show, uh, this episode was highlighted very much in those commercials, little clips from this one, him saving yes. Perry, him saving Lois. Him um, it's odd that you mentioned that because uh, back in the 90s, I bought this video uh, that was supposed to be a documentary on superheroes and unlike uh, television, and they showed that commercial. Oh, cool. Mm. Yeah, great commercial. I'd like to have all those. I don't have those on DVD. I've got... Uh, stamp day and I've got a few other things but I'd also like to have um, my DVD set doesn't contain the commercials and I see that there are some out there that also have the uh, the little promos that they would end uh, sometimes particularly during first run they would end them they would put little clips together and end the, this show with a few clips from you know don't miss the next thrill pack episode in the amazing adventures of superman and they would show a little clip of what was coming up i'd like to have a lot of those little bumpers too i, I wouldn't be surprised if you could find them on uh, youtube probably i haven't really searched for them but i, I bet they are right i bet they're on youtube um, practically everything is there nowadays all right. that's all i have for perils of superman. are you ready for our final episode the final the final episode of our retrospective is also the final episode of the series all That Glitters, Season 6, Episode 13, which aired on April 28, 1958, and once again is directed by George Reeves. Professor J.J. Pepperwinkle is at it again. This time he's created a machine that can transform any metal into gold. United States Secretary of the Treasury, John Salem, and International World Bank President Delbert Carter have done various tests to prove it's the genuine article. They are, in the daily, they are in Daily Planet editor Perry White's office discussing the matter with him. Pepper Winkle and reporters Lois Lane, Jimmy Olsen, and Clark Kent, Carter and Salem, know that the professor's invention would topple the world's economy, trade, and commerce. The two men ask Pepper Winkle that he never make any more gold. He promises not to use his device ever again. Clark, Lois, and Jimmy are also sworn to secrecy on the entire matter. However, J. Blabbermouth Olsen, as Perry has nicknamed him, has unwittingly spilled the beans. As he, Lois, and Professor Pemplewinkle have lunch, Jimmy talks about the gold-making apparatus. Gangsters Nick Mitchell and Elbows Logan are sitting in the diner booth behind them, and they have heard the entire conversation. Now the criminals intend to force Professor Pemplewinkle to make gold for them. Should he refuse, he could pay the ultimate price with his life. And as a side note, Professor Pemplewinkle isolates a dose of kryptonite called Positive K, which winds up giving Lois and Jimmy the same types of powers as Superman. Uh, kind of interesting that that's present, presented as the side note to the whole episode, because that's what I came away from it remembering as a kid. Yeah. And I think that was the whole purpose of the episode, is, you know, mm -hmm. you too can have the powers of Superman. But yeah, this, it, Go ahead, Mike. No, you go ahead. You go first. I, I just I, said, I, this, I keep... this was purely that Saturday morning live-action show feel, and it was just a fun episode, and that was the whole idea behind it to me. Uh, 
you know, just the idea. And then it turns out to be a whole dream sequence and everything. But uh, it was just that whole idea of, hey, you know, you can get uh, superpowers too. That was just fun to watch. And as a kid, it had exactly the effect on me that I'm sure they intended it to. Yeah, it was a, it was a uh, a fun episode. I think the the whole idea of you're you're absolutely right. It's a Saturday morning kids show. Um, for nothing else to say that yes, this is what would it be like if you too uh, had superpowers. Um, it was a fun episode. It um, um, I think to me I took away from it exactly what you did. That uh, the episode was all about Jimmy and Lois getting powers. Um, I love this professor. Um, he was in several of them. He always played the crackpot. Uh, he never played the bad professor. He never played the guy who invented something that was going to kill Superman. Every time Professor Periwinkle or Pepperwinkle showed up, uh, it was going to be a goofy, goofy. Um, even when he was in uh, second season, when he in Topsy Turvy, I think that was the name of it. Where he had the upside down machine. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was about that it. was a fun episode too. Um, and uh, but that, he played that type of professor, the the the, the crazy little crackpot. And uh, I thought this was a fun episode, but uh, nothing scary, nothing you know, no crimes, no you know, uh, other than the. The the crooks who just wanted to get rich by here making me make me some gold. What do you mean I need platinum to make gold? <laughs> yeah, I love that little <laughs> twist. That, yeah, want to make yeah. the gold, and the gold was worth. <laughs> so, uh, but a fun episode, and uh, I'm sure it's not exactly the episode they wanted to end the entire series on, but um, so be it. That's 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 where it ended. That's where uh, it ended. Yeah. It's it's straight out the Silver Age. It's one of the it's fun. Yeah. Jimmy and Lois get the gift of flight, which is neat to see. I did love Jack Larson's performance when he had superpowers, like he was trying to mimic what he thought Superman was like. Yeah. Uh, the best scene in the show for me was the bank manager, who knew off the top of his head who took what money, when they took it, that it was all serial numbers that were sequential. He knew <laughs> where they lived and that they were eminent gangsters. I thought that was brilliant. I knew it was all in Ted, but I thought that scene was hysterically funny. Um, sadly for the final show, it features very little George Reeves, who's missing for most of its runtime, presumably because he directed it as well. I right. found Professor Pepperwinkle to be rather creepy, to be honest with you. Um, but I think it's the last lines, it's the last lines of the episode that stuck with me more than anything. When, um, when Jack Larson, Jimmy Olsen says to Super, says to Clark Kent, you'll never know what it's like to be Superman, will you, Mr. Kent? And he replies, no, Jimmy, I guess I never will. And it's it's hard not to tear up a little bit though mm. to know mm-hmm. that he would live long enough to truly learn what it was to be Superman to an entire generation of people. And oh, I, I think that's did, yeah. like the real sadness of of this final show is those last lines that he would go to his grave thinking he was making this schlock for kids that didn't matter and wasn't important and ironically it ended up being one of the defining moments of pop culture and one of the defining moments of the golden age of television. Yeah, not, not that we're important per se, but I would think if, if I thought that people were going to be sitting around, you know, talking about something I had done, you know, 50-some-odd years later, 60-some-odd years later, and, and having this much to say about it, I, I think I would take some 
great pride in that. Yeah, I was, my mum wasn't alive when this show debuted. Mm. And it's, but I can still watch the show and enjoy it. And I, there's a part of me that likes to think he would have been one of those actors that would have come out the other side of it. That he wouldn't have been one of those who was bitter or resentful, but that he would have come out the other side of it and gone, yeah, I did that, and I'm proud of mm-hmm. it. I like to think he would have, um, but we will not. We will not know. I and mean, it was literally one of the saddest days of this little seven-year-old's life, hearing that on the radio. Um, the day after, I guess it was the night he had shot himself, and then uh, reportedly shot himself, allegedly shot himself. The the next day, the radio everywhere was saying it, and it didn't make sense in my little head. Uh, one. The, the radio guy didn't say George Reeves killed himself last night or was killed last night or died last night. Uh, the radio guy literally broke in and said, breaking news, Superman died last night. What? It just it made absolutely no sense. And then uh, the next day, 4 o'clock in the afternoon or whatever, there he was again on TV, and I'm thinking, well, no, he's not there. He did. Now, of course... I was old enough even at that point to separate acting from TV show, but it was still bringing some really confusing thoughts into this little boy's head that um, how can Superman be dead? It made no sense. And uh, uh, I would have hoped, too, that he would have come through the other side thinking, you know, uh, um, how much had affected a whole generation of people. I mean, we can even, I, I even think about uh, seeing people like Whoopi Goldberg, uh, Billy Crystal, uh, Robin Williams, um, other people who say literally they would not have been in show business, would not have had, uh, would not have had uh, the imagination, would not have known Superman had it not been for these shows and George Reeves. I'm probably one of those. My older cousin had Superman comic books. And those are what I learned to read on. You mean Superman Magazine? Superman Magazine. Action Comics and <laughs> Superman Magazine, yes. And uh, I learned to read those. So that, because of these, I probably would not have seen those comics in that barn, in those trunks, and gone, oh, cool, Superman, had I not seen these shows first. And uh, those comics were ripped up, and they were bad. I know the numbers. It was... Um, uh, you know, there were five comics in those day, in those early things. My cousin had a trunk in the barn full of comic books of all kinds of late golden and early silver age comic books. And, uh, I didn't go for the, um, you know, um, uh, westerns and the military comics and, uh, a lot of other ones. I went for Superman, Action, and World's Finest. And he gave me five that had the covers ripped up or were missing this or missing that. I still have those five comics. Um, and that's really what got me going. It was my trifecta was um, George Reeves, Kurt Swan, and uh, Bud Collier for the Max Fleischer Superman cartoons. To me, that was Superman. And to this day, when somebody says, who's your Superman? Well, it's in which genre? Uh, it's George Reeves. Or it's Kurt Swan. So, um, you know, even reading a Kurt Swan magazine comic, I hear George Reeves. So, um, these episodes meant that I would not be a Superman fan and today had it not been, uh, one, a very smart mother who said, let him read comic books, for God's sakes, at least he's reading. 
and um, letting me stay up on Monday nights to watch Superman in first run, even as a little kid. I couldn't read, but God, did I love these shows. Incredible. I couldn't go as far as that. Knowing how deeply my love of comics goes, I think I would have discovered them anyway. No. Uh, but certainly this was my entrance drug to the whole genre. Uh, I think it's worth making note because just one thing, you know, passing over was one of my favorite things also with regard to the show was always seeing the guest appearance on I Love Lucy. <laughs> and I always got a big kick out of the fact that he was only billed as Superman, not as George Reeves in that episode. And they only refer to him as, jo as Superman in the episode. Uh, and I just love the way he played the character. I love the little effect when he jumps into the party for, through the uh, through the door, the, the window or counter, mm. or whatever you want to call it, from right. the kitchen. Uh, the way he hops out onto the ledge and saves her and everything. It just, I, I thought, it, you know, he stayed in character the whole episode. The only thing that always stood out as strange to me is his voice just sounds different to me in that episode uh, than it did on, the, right. on on his own series, which I really but don't know why. Fact, yeah, but I did like the fact, like you, that he stayed in character the whole time. It wasn't like we're having this actor come to your party. We're having Superman come yes. to your party. And uh, when he just flipped that piano over, I thought, oh, this is Superman. This is so cool. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, just, I yeah. love that episode. Well, there is so much. This, I mean, you know, we've been talking for hours here uh, and really only touched on, you know, a dozen or so out of the 104 of these episodes. And um, other than a couple of them, you could have picked almost any dozen from these, and I'd still be right here, still be talking, still be saying, uh, this was an amazing show. There were only a few shows, and I watched a lot of television. It was new in the 50s, a tiny little black and white set. As a family, we had it, but I was the oldest of four children. I had three younger sisters, so I pretty much, and the only male, so uh, I pretty much controlled the television set. So in the afternoon when this was on, I was watching it on Monday nights when this was on. The family was watching it, so um, it meant a lot to me as a kid. And uh, um, I could still be talking about it. It's just incredible. We could pick, you know, so many of these shows had so much to say. And I think it's funny that, uh, 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 particularly Andy uh, and Michael, being so young, coming to these and still finding the same kinds of things that I as a kid saw in them and being able to look back at them and enjoy them for what they are and their place in history. Um, it's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing, and I appreciate that. You got any final thoughts, Andy? Um, no, I, I watched a lot of these with Anya, my little girl, and she sat riveted to them for the most part. So the fact that it can still have that hold over children, I mean, she's a sucker for Superman anyway, right. but the fact that it can hold a, a 10-year-old in thrall just shows how good they are. Yeah, for me, it's... One, this is this is exciting because it's new Superman that I can discover. Mm. So, uh, you know, that, 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 you know, after reading, you know, thousands of comics and watching movies and listening to radio series and, and, you know, doing as much research and all, it's still, it's like, wow, still, you know, virgin territory, basically. Mm. But also, it's amazing to watch, particularly the first season, which I will always prefer, 
how much that Superman influenced the Superman I grew up with in the comics in the post-crisis era. Uh, you know, Marv Wolfman was heavily influenced by it. I know Roger Stern was, uh, particularly the fact that the Newstime building was the Daily Planet building from this TV series, and that was L.A. City Hall, but still to see that kind of carryover. The, the attitude of Clark Kent, you know, Byrne took heavily from this series. His Superman was more the Christopher Reeve, but still there was that little bit of, that little bit of, you know, you know, Andy used the word taciturn, and I, and I think that's a good way to describe the early Superman in this. Yeah, by the end of the series, the shows were a little goofier, they were brighter, they were more colorful, literally and figuratively. And, you know, George took on a more, you know, fatherly, you know, aura about him. But man, those first, that, those first 26 episodes, just, I can watch those over and over again and, mm-hmm. and think, wow, that is, that's my Superman. Yeah. And that's weird to say because, you know, I'm, I'm 37 years old now. So by the time I was born, it had been, you know, almost 20 years since the show went off the air. Mm. And yet I can, as a Superman fan, uh, you know, find something to really g- grab onto. And, and I think that's the, the legacy of this series is that so many people found it to be influential. And now thanks to DVD and, you know, Amazon, you know, you know, streaming and iTunes that you can basically relive everything now and a whole new generation can discover it. I don't know if subsequent generations will feel as strongly about it, uh, as we do. But there's always that chance. And and it's an important part of Superman's history, because when you really think about it, the 50s were kind of a dead time for the superhero genre. Yeah, Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman were still being published, but it wasn't, you know, for, you know, and, and in 1956, the Silver Age began, but still, for that couple of years before superheroes really became a thing again, this is what, you know, kids had to go to for that type of entertainment. And, you know, it, it, I, I think really Superman's longevity, uh, into the sixties and why he was able to kind of hold up until the Christopher Reeve movie kind of redefined him again. I think it was a series. Absolutely. In all honesty. Cause once cable came in, cause you know, you had it in regular syndication throughout the sixties, then it kind of faded a little bit in the seventies. But once cable television started to come and, 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 uh, I guess what, late seventies, early eighties, uh, that was the next time anybody actually started to see these again. And then Nick at night, uh, mm-hmm. when Nick at night, I, I was thrilled when I first had cable and I hadn't seen these shows in probably a decade or more and really hadn't seen any of them in color. And then here's Nick at night and they're going to do a marathon where they're going to show all 104 of them consecutively in a row, starting from number one and going through them. I had sat here with my Betamax VCR. <laughs> Didn't have a DVR. I sat here with my Betamax and hit record and let it go. And I recorded all 104 of them. I didn't sleep for two days. Sitting here recording. Cause I, where else was I going to get a chance to have these episodes? They had no idea. Wow, I'm going to own these episodes? This is incredible. And uh, literally until I had the DVDs of them, um, 
that's what I would go to if I wanted to watch any of these episodes. I'd pop out the old betas and put them in. I no longer have the Betamax. It finally died. But um, I still have the tapes. <laughs> if you want all 104 of them uh, recorded off of Nick at Night on beta, I've got those. Um, but that's how important this show was to me, to actually get it. And then when the DVDs came out, uh, you couldn't stop me. There was no way I wasn't going to have these. Um, now to be able to just pop them in and watch any of these at any time. Uh, I think they should be required <laughs> for, for all children of all ages. Everyone should be required. And you can't call yourself a Superman fan if you have not seen these. You don't have to love them. I'm not saying that you have to love them all. And I could understand why you're born in the modern era or you've got Christopher Reeve as your Superman. Uh, because Superman one, when he walked on the set, uh, people said, wow, they're a Superman. Uh, but to me, Christopher Reeve was a good Superman. He was a bronze age. He was great for the theater, great for the movies at the time. But you ask me, who is Superman? It's George Reeves. Who's the best Clark Kent ever? It's George Reeves. I'm with you on that. You know, um, I like my Clark Kent to be in charge. I don't think, even as an adult, you get to be the byline reporter for a major metropolitan newspaper and be a bumbling idiot. You, you're just not going to get there. And um, uh, this George Reeves, to me, is Clark Kent, is Superman. And Phyllis Coates is Lois Lane, in spite of Noel Neal doing an admirable job with what she was given and the type of character they wanted from her. But to me, those first 24 episodes and moments, um, it just doesn't get any better. It really just doesn't get any better. Uh, again, there are some gems throughout the color episodes. There's some real gems in there. Um, as I was telling uh, someone on Facebook the other day who was wondering, he said, well, I've got the first season or something. I don't think I should buy the others because they're whatever. They're in, you know. And I said, no, you need to have them all. You don't have to love them all. But to, I think to a, really appreciate what this show is about, uh, get as many of them as you can and watch as many of them as you can. Because uh, we talked about, what, 15 of them here out of 104. And uh, it runs the gamut from being, oh, my God, this is the worst piece of crap I have ever. Oh, God, I'm not going to be able to make the 25 minutes to just wishing the would never end. I want to see more of these. And, Andy, do what you can to try to get Seasons 5 and Season 6. It may be on iTunes. I'll have to have a look. Okay. I want to thank you guys. Uh, thank you for doing this with me. I really, uh, really had a good time, and I'm glad we settled on the format that we did because my original thoughts we were going to do this like you guys had done the Hulk one and kind of go through it episode by episode. But now, in hindsight, that would have taken us about a month. <laughs> day day 85 I'm still recording the podcast the soda has run out days ago and my wife is no longer speaking to me Real realistically if we wanted to do it that way we probably would have had to start an Adventures of Superman podcast and do you know two episodes per podcast yeah per podcast. <laughs> and that wasn't going to work so uh, this, this, this worked out really well you know about a year ago I guess I was listening to Couch Potato episode and uh, 
told my wife, I, I said, here, you have to listen to a little bit of this. This is just really funny. And uh, I almost had her convinced. And I, if I had done it, I should have done it right then because she said, okay, turn it on. Let's go. I almost had her convinced to do a couch potato commentary type thing of the first season of this show with me. I was just going to turn it on, record the two of us just talking over these episodes. Uh, I almost had her convinced to do that. So um, that's how I've been thinking. I've been thinking about these shows for a long time and how to weasel myself onto a podcast. <laughs> so uh, when Michael sends me that invitation, I was jokingly saying... Yes, you know, squealing like a little girl, but inside, yes, I was squealing like a little girl. Oh, my God, yes. Talk about the adventures of Superman with you three guys. Doesn't get any better. The, 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 the thing about doing podcasting and, and talking about something like this is that it's all well and good to have, you know, a couple guys that are on the same page and all that, but th there's just something about getting different perspectives uh, and, and different, you know, it's, it's why when I did a Titans episode of views, I got Thomas DJ cause he's a little older than me and has a completely different viewpoint of it. And I think it becomes more balanced. So you've got the entire spectrum. You've got somebody who's seen it from first run to me and, and, and Andy who saw it, you know, on DVD basically, uh, you know, outside of watching it a little on television. So I, it just, Having you on just just filled that kind of that gap that we kind of needed, I think, and and I think it made for a better episode because of it. Well, I appreciate it. It was an absolute thrill to be here and talk about. Um, well, I, like I say, I can talk about Superman anytime, any place. To throw on top of it, we're going to talk about the adventures of Superman, my favorite Superman. The only other thing we could have done any better was actually add a few Kurt Swan uh, comments to it, and I think I did that fairly well. So. Uh, I got my points in, <laughs> and and they were all, uh, in my opinion, certainly worth hearing. So I'm, well, I'm glad to put them in. Well, yeah. I'm available anytime you guys want to talk about Superman. I'll leave it yes. with you. Anytime. Thank you very much for inviting. Thrilling adventures of two true freaks. Go to www.twotruefreaks.com. Well, you know, the opening uh, was required for all baby boomers, even if they didn't watch the show, they know that opening. Faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. Look up in the sky. It's a bird, it's a plane, it's Superman. That's just a great... Strange visitor from another planet who came to Earth with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. Superman, who can change the course of mighty rivers, then steel in his bare hands, and who, disguised as Clark Kent, mild-mannered reporter for a great metropolitan newspaper, fights a never-ending battle for truth, justice, and the American way. He was never that mild-mannered in this show, though, was he, really? No. 
Not at all. Mouth mannered as he got is in that clown episode where he drops his glasses in the circus and goes, "Oh, gee, clumsy me." <laughs> <laughs>